Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devinder Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, she's the film and television editor at TheVerge.com. She's also the co-host of one of my favorite film podcasts, The Next Picture Show. Tasha Robinson, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Tasha, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's been so long that there are actually cobwebs on my my microphone <laughs> that I haven't cleared off uh, since you know because this this is my special slash film cast microphone right. oh, yeah. that I don't use for yeah. anybody else. As we all and, as uh, we all have one, yes, that's correct. When um, the red phone rings, that's the mic you use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but the spiders have gotten into my red phone. It's actually a little disturbing. I feel it. It's it's kind of got a haunted house ambiance now. We gotta so stop you- sending people spiders with their microphones. <laughs> We do. Indeed. I think that's a mistake in retrospect. Uh, agreed. agreed. I, when I when I opened the box, I thought it was just a piece of Spider-Verse swag. So <laughs> I, I was fine with it. Well, uh, we are so pleased to have you on. Um, Tasha Robinson is one of my favorite film critics working today. And so it's oh. an honor to have her have her be here. And what an episode to have her on because we have so much to talk about tonight. It's kind of insane. Uh, we got some follow-ups from last week, uh, the last few weeks, actually. We got a very brief what we've been watching because we got to get to the main event today, which is our discussion of the Oscars, which is something we've all been watching, and then follow that up with an in-depth review of How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, the third and final question mark film in the How to Train Your Dragon series. Uh, we shall see. So uh, that's what we got on tap for you on the Slash Filmcast. If we have time, we'll do an After Dark as well. Should be a lot of fun. So let's get to it. Uh, in terms of follow-up, we got a couple items we want to follow up on. Uh, I, I do want to say that, in general, we recorded the last few episodes in a row. Like, we recorded them in a very compressed period of time. And so it's actually been a, a few weeks since we've all been together. And so there are a couple of items that uh, I wanted to follow up on. One of them was, a few weeks ago, we were uh, honored to have April Wolf on this podcast. And uh, she joined us to discuss the uh, Netflix film about the art world, Velvet Buzzsaw. And at the end of that episode, I asked everyone to chime in with their thoughts on uh, a movie that does the modern art world, uh, that has a, has an interesting take on the modern art world, because we felt like uh, Velvet Buzzsaw didn't necessarily do a great job of that. Uh, none of us mentioned The Square, uh, which is a great film about modern art uh, that I think several of us have seen. We, I, I've seen it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, for some reason, it slipped our mind, and several people tweeted at us about it. I just wanted to give that movie a shout-out because it is a delight. Tasha Robinson, you ever seen uh, The Square by any chance? I have not. Did you guys cover uh, Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood? Uh, no, I don't think so. Why do no, you ask? We, because we did a whole uh, double episode about Velvet Buzzsaw and Bucket of Blood, and that was something that one of our listeners suggested, mm. uh, pairing those two movies. Corman's Bucket of Blood uh, takes uh-huh. place in more or less in a uh, beatnik coffee house where there's a young man who admires all of the artists around him and desperately wants to be one. And that leads him into a place of murder. Listen, so Tasha, we don't do research here. OK, <laughs> Clearly. I, I was, that's for your I was show. Completely, completely unaware of uh, Bucket of Blood as anything but a snazzy title. Uh, until title. somebody suggested it, but it, it made a really good pairing. It literally, I, I literally thought you were making that up just now as a movie. But yes, um, Bucket of Blood. And of course, Tasha is alluding to the fact that on her show, The Next Picture Show, they discuss a, a movie that's kind of a precursor to a movie that's just come out uh, and kind of pair them together. It's a really great idea for a podcast. And I'm always humbled and uh, I always learn things when I listen to that show. So would highly recommend it's at the nextpictureshowpod.com, right? Is that where it is? 
Uh, next picture pod. Next picture pod. You can find it at nextpictureshow.net and uh, next picture pod on Twitter. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, so The Square by Ruben Oslin. Another great movie about modern art. Uh, would highly recommend it. Thanks to those who, who sent that in for us. Uh, on last week's episode of the show, episode 505, we reviewed uh, Alita Battle Angel with Max Ivory. And at the end of the show, uh, we, we, we were in a unique situation because we typically record shows after the movies come out. But we recorded that one before the film came out. And so I asked everyone to wager on uh, what the opening dollar amount would be for that film, what, what the opening box office weekend would be. Uh, Jeff Kanata guessed $35 million. Dave Chen, that's me, guessed $30 million. Uh, Max Ivory, our guest, guessed uh, $25 million. And Devendra guessed $20 million. And once again, David Chen shows that he is the best box office prognosticator because the actual true number uh, for Alita Battle Angel was $28.5 million. So really, I, I was the closest. Right. I don't know. Price is right rules stipulate that you <laughs> automatically lose, Dave. I, as uh, we indicated, uh, as I indicated just now, Jeff, I was the closest, right? I mean, I think it's... Uh, not without uh, going over. Yeah, I mean, I went over a little, but like one and a half million dollars. But, you know, mm-hmm. I I don't know if I mentioned this, Jeff, but I'm the closest. So... Yeah, but... Anyway. So- <laughs> Max didn't go over, and yeah. he was still pretty close. Well, I think I think what the lesson here is is that we got to clarify the rules before we make a bet next time. Um, Clearly, also but... <laughs> uh, that movie was released, if I'm not mistaken, on a Wednesday. That's right. Which means uh, this is this is all shenanigans. It's all shenanigans. Uh, you're out of order. We're all out of order. <laughs> uh, the. Uh, how can you even judge Friday to Sunday as the opening weekend if it opened on Wednesday? I don't even know what the Wednesday to Sunday take was, but it skews everything. It destroys this whole process. The dogs and cats living together. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, but yes, you, you are right that it did open on Wednesday. And um, I do think that uh, the movie did a lot better than any of us thought it would do. It, it, to date, it has made uh, $61 million domestically and $203 million in non-U.S. territories uh, for a total of $264 million. Uh, it really has a chance of not being a box office disaster. And I think uh, that is remarkable given that you know a couple weeks ago we thought that it would do pretty poorly. So mm-hmm. uh, apparently it'll be big in China. So uh, yeah. You're going to get that, uh, that sequel? We Maybe that teased oh, sequel. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna finally find out what what happens with blank character that I can't reveal. Because we'll see if it will arrive before the uh, the next Avatar movie, right? Like, certain... That would be the ultimate hilarity. <laughs> There's a certain actor who's who's really crossing his fingers on that. One. <laughs> yes, a certain actor. Got nothing else to do. Who yeah. shall remain nameless? <laughs> uh, who is really crossing his fingers? So anyway, uh, the the one takeaway you need to have from this conversation is Dave Chen won again. And uh, that was the uh, end of the game. I think it's disputed. I think it's in, in dispute. <laughs> Let's talk Just... about what we've been watching this week. Tasha Robinson, what have you watched this week? You know, you asked me for audio quality purposes to mute when uh, I wasn't talking. And what you're missing from that is me guffawing at every third thing you guys say. Because <laughs> uh, that was a really hilarious segment. Oh, thanks. Um, I don't feel actually... free to not mute if you want to laugh. I mean, <laughs> yeah, keep laugh. We, we, we appreciate the support. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't predict when you're going to say something. I can't predict when you're going to go into the whole system is out of order quotes. Yeah. Uh, 
and you don't want me like unmuting in the middle of a guffaw. It's that's, true. That would be, be disorienting. Startling. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, you're you're just gonna have to to choose no guffaw, full guffaw, semi guffaw. Yeah. Indeed. Um, I don't see theater theatrical movies very often. I I'm buried under screeners and digital screeners and critical screenings, which are in the theater, but happen like way before release. Tasha's, so Tasha's trying to say me. like people beg her to see movies. Basically, they, they like they set She's up special fancy. screenings. She's like royalty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's why I you mean, don't go to the movie do... that often, right? I do show up in a golden palanquin. It's like the red carpet, <laughs> except shinier. And I don't have a paparazzi between my legs trying to get an indiscreet photo. Uh, no, what I'm saying is that it's very rare for me to to go see a movie in theatrical release. But I made an exception for Isn't It Romantic, the uh, Rebel Wilson movie. Have any of you guys seen that? Mm-mm. Haven't no, seen it. But... Heard it's very funny. It's kind of like yes, a, uh, yeah. a parody of romantic comedies, right? Exactly. It's a meta-romantic comedy. Uh, Rebel Wilson plays this woman who hates romantic comedies, and then she gets hit in the head and wakes up in a romantic comedy, and then it becomes a send-up of the genre. And it's it's like somebody went into my mind and made a list of things that I love and made them into a movie. Like, <laughs> it's a very sarcastic movie. I'm very, very into sarcasm, uh, very into dissing romantic comedies, uh, love movies with uh, non-traditional like size and shape people uh, I love female led movies really don't care for romantic comedies and like Liam Hemsworth a lot. He's the the male lead. So all of these things put together just seem like, and I, I love meta humor in general. I love uh, cinematic deconstructions that don't take themselves seriously. And uh, they put all those things together and they made a movie that was entirely okay. Uh, it's very Aww. cute. It's very, it's very light. It's uh really still made for the romantic comedy crowd, but it's the kind of film that feeds you humor, like recognition humor, where you can kind of go, I got that joke. Uh, I understand what this film is making fun of. That That is funny because it's so true. And that's pretty much the movie. There's, there's a lot of really lively humor just based around, you know, after she and wakes up in a romantic comedy, she walks into her apartment. And despite the fact that she has not the best job and lives in New York City, she has suddenly has a gigantic pastel apartment with immense rooms and high ceilings. And her uh, kind of crappy little dog is suddenly fluffy and knows all of the tricks and just on and on and on. Just things that I don't want to spoil because some of the best reveals in the film are just this is what it would be like to be inside a romantic comedy. But inevitably, it has to go in the direction of an actual romantic comedy. Mm. So predictable in a lot of ways, Aww. but very cute, very lively, very funny, and very, very self-aware, which I'm still this, a fan of. This is a movie I've actually been looking forward to seeing at some point because it's directed by uh, Todd strauss Chelson, who did The Final Girls a couple of years ago. And that was oh, a great yeah. horror deconstruction. He also did the third Harold and Kumar movie, which I believe we reviewed. I just rewatched that. It's still a lot of fun even though we don't even talk about that movie anymore. Yeah, definitely somebody who likes breaking things down to see what's on the other side of Mm -hmm. them. So good for him on that. Uh, I'm curious, Tasha, how you think this movie, Isn't It Romantic, compares to another romantic comedy uh, send-up. They came together, right? That movie, the uh, Paul Rudd, Amy Poehler one, I think, right? I think this one is a lot... A lot fluffier in a lot of ways, a lot, a lot more pastel. That one felt a little darker and a little bitterer. Yeah, but I laughed a edge lot more at this one. Yeah, that movie had an edge to it, right? It was that, so uh, dry. Yeah. I remember it being super, super dry and not like, yeah, not fluffy at all. 
it's been a while and I don't remember that one nearly as well. Obviously, it's something I just saw, but I remember it feeling a little sour and ultimately not having a lot to say. Whereas, isn't it romantic? Not only kind of tries to flip the tropes on their head, but really does kind of try to say something meaningful at the end in a way that I appreciated. Got it. All right. Well, uh, that's the movie, Isn't It Romantic? And it is out in theaters right now. Divindra, what have you been watching this week? Oh, just quickly, I saw High Flying Bird, the new Steven Soderbergh movie that's on Netflix. I think it just kind of appeared on Netflix. I don't remember there being a lot of warning ahead of time. So that's that's kind of weird that this yeah, is the future just, we're living in. He just uploaded it from his phone. so it sort of He might as well it. have. Yeah, this yeah. is the movie that his next movie that he shot on iPhone. And I uh, have to say, uh, so what is this movie, right? It, it stars Andre Holland as a sports agent, uh, as an NBA agent, basically, who's been he's trying to help out his client in the midst of a, of a lockout, I guess. And I have no idea. Like I don't watch basketball. I'm certainly not interested. Like I I have no sense of all the sports terminology and all the business stuff they're talking about. So watching this movie is a lot like uh, if you meet somebody really interesting at a party and you have no idea what they actually do or the words they're using or anything. So I was just following along with this movie going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Most of the time. Uh, it's really it's an interesting deconstruction of basketball as a business kind of reminds me of Moneyball in a way. Uh, it's also written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote Moonlight. So it has a really great I feel like it just gets basketball. It also has really great dialogue. Uh, the way people talk, uh, there's there's a great like, I don't know, pattern to it. Um, it feels almost like a play. Yeah, it's this very play-like. Where, it's very yeah, play-like. People are just like sitting down in chairs and talking to each other. Um, so I think that's what kept me going. And also Andre Holland just really committing himself to being this sort of like NBA fixer in a way. Like he, he's the guy who knows the business and he's trying to fix it and make life better for his players and everyone. Uh, have to say, I can't, I don't know if I understand what happened throughout most of this movie. And even by the <laughs> end, I get, I get a sense of it, but not clearly. Uh, it's sort of like if an oceans movie happened and they have the big reveal of like how the whole heist went down, except you're not sure what was stolen and what the end <laughs> result is. Uh, so there's that. It is really fun to watch though, mainly for the actors and um, you know, it just looks really interesting. Uh, I saw, I also saw Unsane a while back and that was his other iPhone movie. And that movie just looked ugly. It like, and I know I think that's part of the point of how that movie was supposed to look, but I don't know if it was the grading or the way he shot it, but it was a really ugly jarring movie to see whereas this one it'd be hard to tell this was not shot on like you know traditional uh digital cameras i think the main difference i noticed is that uh i think a lot of the i don't know the uh, what would you call it like the camera uh, lenses or the aspect ratio or something like is off quite a bit yeah Uh, so you may be better to explain this yeah Yeah. so i i have some thoughts on this movie first of all davindra uh I completely agree with you that the movie is very difficult to understand. And uh, I, I like by coincidence, I uh, had a- asked my wife to watch this movie with me. Uh-huh. Now, my wife knows far more <laughs> the about the coincidence that you watch something with your wife. <laughs> no, 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 no. But this particular listen, that's this... not a, uh, a, a pimple popping video. Yeah, like, that's yeah, right. You got to arrange right. these things. This, yeah. this particular movie. just happened to be in the same place at the same time. <laughs> both of us. You know what? It's so weird. We both live here and uh, we both there's only one television. It turns out. That at the eight o'clock hour, we were both in the same place at the same uh, time. What are the 
odds. Okay, okay Jeff. Okay. Are you, are you done? <laughs> you coincidence. Done? He's not done. Um, I, got, I got another 20 minutes on this day. This <laughs> particular movie, right? High Flying Bird on Netflix. Uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of movies, and not all of them are with my wife. That's all I was trying to say, Jeffrey, okay? <laughs> okay. And uh, <laughs> it's really fortunate that she watched it with me because uh, my wife knows probably, I don't know, 50 times a, a, as much information about sports as I do. Um, so, like, she knows all about the basketballs and the footballs and all that stuff. Oh, great, great, great. All the um, sports balls. Yeah. So we were pausing every 10 minutes, and she, I was like, okay, please explain to me what just happened in that scene, <laughs> right? And she would explain it, and it, it was great. And so I actually feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what happened in the film. Um, and I, I think it's quite enjoyable. I, I found it to be more interesting as a formal exercise. Yes, uh, he yes, shot yes. the film on an iPhone 8, so not mm-hmm. even the iPhone 8 Plus, which I believe has a better camera, right? He shot it on an iPhone 8, and that allows him to have a lot of advantages. You could put the camera anywhere, right? In the shower, uh, like against the wall, like from up above. Like you can shoot all kinds of uh, of angles. There's an immediacy to the dialogue. And it actually... But, you know, he he, said, he claims that the reason he, he chooses the iPhone is because he's sick of doing all the post-processing. And yet they did a ton of post-processing. There has to be a ton of post-processing. They, yeah. You know, if you can read – there's articles online about all of the extensive post-processing yeah. that was done on this movie. Well, this, thing, this particular Netflix, movie. It's playing on Netflix in Dolby Vision. And the iPhone does not shoot in Dolby. <laughs> like, so to make that happen, you have to like massage But they like, the went in and like they, they color-corrected specific zones of the yeah. image. And like, right. they did – it, the idea that this is like I just shot it on my iPhone and, the, and it was it was done is such a yeah I agree completely idea. with you I agree completely with you that uh, like the idea of shooting in an iPhone does not adequately convey the sheer quantity of work that went into making the mm-hmm. film right but I it's do not think like he's just holding up an iPhone he's holding up like a rig like a gimbal rig basically so, sometimes it it's a gimbal stable. sometimes it's on a tripod um, but what you don't see are like the people capturing sound or how sound is captured mm-hmm. and uh, and as Jeff indicated you're not seeing all the post-processing <laughs> stuff um, yeah. I, so I just want to point out two things about the technique one is as you said Devendra uh, there are technical issues with the image that are, are they're occasionally distracting. Um, the iPhone sensor is like the size of your pinky nail, right? So uh, when you have a sensor that's small, everything is theoretically in focus in the image, right? Like almost everything is in focus. So um, if you've seen movies like Contagion or Side Effects, like his most recent movies where you have like this beautiful bokeh, this like sh- shallow depth of field, that's basically impossible to achieve using an iPhone, right? So uh, in every image, it's all like wide angle. It's all like pretty much uh, very sharp with some exceptions. So wide. So- yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, like the the actual like something that's closer to you is is like less sharp than something that's farther away than you. And I noticed that a couple times in the image. But I will say this. I will say this that as far as uh, filming filmmaking stunts go, I do think that the uh, medium uh, or mm-hmm. the, the way in which he shot it. It, it did match the material, right? You have right, these yeah. long extended sequences where two or three people are having a an extended conversation that lasts like 10 minutes long. It's very much like a play. You want a shot that's going to capture all those people and reacting to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think the the filmmaking style does accommodate that. So this is sort of like the next level of the West Wing walk and talk, basically. Yeah, like you, it's yeah. like you, you, it's much smaller. You can walk all the way around and stuff. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think that's what made the movie so dynamic because trying to follow the plot was rough. For me. Yeah. 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 If, 
Maybe, David, could you maybe have your wife do a walkthrough? Because <laughs> I, I was in the same place and I I was afraid that I, there was just something that I was missing. Uh-huh. But I don't think that the movie fundamentally, the, the way I experienced the movie, it didn't seem to be fundamentally about sports in any way where knowing a lot more about sports would have helped. It seemed to be fundamentally maybe. about, you know, people bullying each other and jockeying for financial uh, and social leverage. And right. that's something that in theory you should be able to understand without knowing a thing about how basketball is played. So if it's, there is information yeah. about basketball that would help this movie feel more like forceful and focused and, and interesting, I would love to see that information because I didn't feel like I didn't understand the movie. I just felt like it didn't, it wasn't structured in a way that made its, its point about the mm-hmm. steps being taken and the movement being taken it particularly well at all. Mm. I, I think that it's like saying uh, if you know a lot about real estate, you'll understand Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross better, which is ridiculous to say, right? Well, it's, it, it's not really about that. Did you see the movie, that. by the way, Jeff? High Flying Bird? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I think I would say this. I, I, in general, I agree with you, but I think um, you, you need to at least have an extremely basic comprehension of right. – like the the, the oh, yeah the, what a the essential what a blackout is right the you need to know what a blackout if you don't know what a blackout are, is the movie's gonna be difficult to understand and I did yeah, not yeah. know what a blackout was or a lockout the I stakes say. of lockout. Glengarry are very very clear right yeah. it's like okay you you gotta get this amount of business uh, something about coffee something about closing like it's all very <laughs> clear this movie doesn't do that it just, it says lockout a lot and assumes you know the full extent of what that means yeah I agree yeah. that Glengarry is superior on every level. And oh, yeah. I, I was kind of I was bringing that up as a way to I think this this movie is trying to be Mammothian in how it's sort of, you know, David Mammoth's very famously, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't care about the MacGuffin. It doesn't care if you know what's going on. He, he's not talking about what's going on. He's talking about the people and the subtext and all that stuff. Um, and I think this movie aims to do that. And uh, unfortunately, falls short in my opinion and it, it, it's, it's very clearly about what's going on though right you it's not a MacGuffin thing because the whole the whole point of everything that's happening in this story hinges on something happening at the end right and i just want a yeah. better understanding of what that is and what that means for everybody the, yeah i mean it that... does feel a little like soderbergh is trying to mm-hmm. trying to go in an ocean's 11 direction and a logan lucky direction where somebody is pulling off mm-hmm. uh, a clever heist against the man like somebody is putting together an outside the box way of approaching a situation and as a result they managed to like upend an expected social dynamic but it's not entirely clear what that was to begin with apart from rich guys are rich and have control and it's not really clear what he's accomplished in the end except something something rich guys less control a lockout yeah. broke i'm yeah. very confused and and i also think it it's one of those movies that as somebody who's a huge fan of the nba it's like Let's take away all of the excitement of what the NBA is and make a movie about the NBA. Yeah, um, yeah for for a movie about basketball, there is virtually zero basketball yes, in the movie, exactly. right? So, exactly. Um, anyway, there, there's a scene right where they're teasing a basketball game, like, oh, a one on one, you know, session, something's going to happen, and the movie cuts away, cuts away immediately <laughs> as the action is about to begin. Like, come on, yeah. Oh, I think that's very deliberate, and yeah. and I oh, was yeah, yeah, entirely. Yeah. Fine with that dynamic because I've seen so many basketball movies, I've seen so many sports mm-hmm. movies, I've seen so many underdog team movies. Getting at the mechanics and the money uh, seemed like a really interesting approach, and particularly yeah. approaching the racial dynamic yep. involved yep. in a bunch of extremely rich white men controlling the lives of some extremely poor black kids mm-hmm. who are like desperately trying to get out of poverty. 
and think they have it made the second they signed to the NBA. I thought that was all really interesting subject matter. I just wish we'd gotten into it in a way mm-hmm. that made a little more sense, either as as like a heist achievement movie or as like a drama about these kids and what their lives are. Mm. Yeah, well, well that is High Flying Bird. Mixed thoughts here on uh, the podcast for that film. I think it's, like I said, I, I found it to be an interesting formal exercise, but it wasn't like uh, I'm running out there and telling everyone, you got to go see High Flying Bird. I thought you right. might enjoy it the most, Jeff, because it was uh, play-like, right? You yes, know, I, I, kind of yeah. I thought I would too. It sounds like I enjoyed it the least. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I really did. I, I was excited to see it, genuinely, as, as a fan of the NBA, as a fan of uh, these kinds of smaller you know, talky movies. Um, it just, it did not click for me at all. I found it, it yeah, I found it te- tedious to be quite honest yeah, with you. No, fair enough. Uh, well, again, that's High Flying Bird. It's on Netflix. It's a new Steven Soderbergh movie. Uh, okay, we got, we got to get to the Oscars soon. So I just want to, I'll just say like literally two sentences about the movie I watched this week. Uh, yeah, I'll go quick too. Bought a new TV and decided to finally watch Train to Busan on it. Great. Korean horror film, uh, very mm-hmm. scary, and uh, not not an HDR movie, Dave. You're not quite really pushing know, your I, TV to the limit yet. It's Come true, on. but uh, I found it to be very engrossing and very well done. And so, Train to Busan, yeah. great horror zombie film. If you want to check it out, okay, that's what I've been watching. Uh, Jeff, how about you? We've talked about Escape at Denimora several times on the show, so I won't I won't belabor the point. But I just think that series is phenomenal. I yep. think it proves that Ben Stiller is a directorial force to be reckoned with. I'm just so blown away by what he put on the screen. I think the last two episodes are, it, the, it just goes into the stratosphere. Like the first few episodes are riveting and interesting and cool character studies and, and, you know, salacious and, you know, on the edge of your seat type stuff, especially for somebody like me that doesn't quite remember this stuff. But the last two episodes just take off in a way that is amazing. Uh, I know Dave, when you talked about it, you mentioned this, this sort of one take that's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Sec- yeah. Extraordinary. It's Incredible. unbelievable. Yeah. And u- useful. Like it expresses something. It's right? necessary. It's yes. not just a flourish, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but I all, but the real reason I want to bring it up uh, that I finished it is when I was done, <laughs> I was like, I gotta know who's the guy that played Lyle. Her husband, Patricia Arquette's husband. Mm-hmm. I could not believe it. I, Eric Lange, Lang, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Lange. Yeah. Uh, he deserves every Emmy that there is. Uh, all the Emmys from the past and the future. He, it is a transformation <laughs> that he goes through. It is so, I think, so grounded and so human and so beautiful and I, I've seen that he's a character actor. I've seen many, many times he's in Lost and a lot of other things. And I saw an interview with him and I was like, that can't be the same guy. It can't be the same guy. It is incredible. You're laughing at me because you disagree? No, no. I, I, I oh. agree completely. Um, it, it, it's it, like If you compare dude. his his like appearance and different things, it's, it's amazing. But I also – I'm just laughing because that other week we were reviewing Aquaman and you thought that guy was in it and it wasn't the same guy. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, still, I still think it's the same guy. <laughs> but, but Eric, no, but Eric Lang, dude, incredible. He, in, in, in a in a show full of incredible performances, I mean, Patricia Arquette is amazing. Yep. Benicio del Toro is amazing. Paul Dano, I think this might be the best of Paul Dano's work I've ever seen. It's 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 a chock full of great performances. It's beautifully shot. This thing, everybody should be talking about this show. This is an amazing show, 
And uh, I think head and shoulders above them all is this guy, Eric Lange, who <laughs> is it's a chameleon performance. I mean, this is like uh, <laughs> Gary Oldman at the height of his powers. Or so, you know, it's like a right. complete transformation into a different guy who is completely believable, not a caricature, not over the top. Like it's it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I do think that uh, it, this is a show that benefits from being able to binge it. Um, I think a lot of people, like a lot of the initial reviews were, oh, it's boring, it's too slow. And I think like being able to binge it really does change it up. So I would strongly yes, recommend yeah. it. It's Escape at Danamora. It's on Showtime. If you have any yeah. of the Showtime video on demand, you can just binge the whole thing. It's, uh, yeah, it's one of the best things I've seen this year, yeah. I guess. Right. So I agree, man. And I can't wait to see what Ben Stiller directs next. Yeah. Like, I hope he. I hope this is, uh, you know, predictive of where his career is headed because I want to see more stuff like this from him. Indeed, agreed. I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? All right, that's going to bring us to the end of our What We've Been Watching segment. Let's move on to the Oscars, the 91st Annual Academy Awards. Uh, and how many of you guys watched the whole thing? I know Tasha was live tweeting the whole night. Um, did, did I think I saw about the second half. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember saw the second half? Jeff, how about you? No, I, I basically just watched highlights. I see. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so Tasha and I are the experts here then. So yeah. Tasha, <laughs> Tasha, this was a show. That was widely predicted to be a disaster. I mean, this is a uh, a situation where they had a host and they didn't have a host, and the way that it was handled was pretty bad. And they they were going to put these four things in the commercials, and then they didn't put them, and then they were going to have a popular film category, and they didn't do it. Uh, it was re- really felt like they didn't know what they were doing, and so I think a lot of people were tuning in just to see how bad it would be. Did those expectations? Did the show live up to those expectations of how terrible it would be? What do you think? Well, it definitely, I mean, for for the show to have lived up to what we saw the Academy doing in the months beforehand, they literally would have had to run out in the middle of the show, grab the Oscar out of the hands of the winners during the speeches and say, no, well, we changed our minds. We're giving those to somebody else. Uh, and given that we'd seen that happen in recent years, it, it isn't necessarily something that would have surprised people. But the, the Academy's process this year has just been like hey we've decided we're doing this oh oh crap everybody on social media hated that never mind <laughs> like over and over and over we yeah. usually went through the space of a couple of days and it just came across as we haven't thought about any of these decisions we haven't focus group tested any of these decisions possibly we haven't even like gone home and asked our spouses like hey what do you think <laughs> about this crazy idea it just like it literally felt like somebody was grabbing a microphone and saying, hey, would it make you guys happy if if we shipped ice cream to everybody in the United States during the Oscars? Would that make you watch? Wait, we just checked our ice cream budget. We can't. Never mind. That's yeah. what the process <laughs> felt like. Mm. So, no, it was not that level of crazy. What really surprised me was I realized about halfway through the show that I didn't miss having a host at all. Like the the opening moments where they kind of had Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph 
doing a little comedy routine that was like, we're not hosting the show, but we'll sort of make some host monologue jokes uh, to kind of lead us in. Like that was awkward. And the end of the show where they kind of had Julia Roberts say, it's over, go home was kind of awkward. So maybe they needed something a little more solid to bookend it. But other than that, I just, I realized the only thing we were missing by not having a host was not getting those like really awkward scripted jokes crammed in in the middle. That's like, Hey, this thing that happened 20 minutes ago was really wacky. Let's make fun of one of the winner's speeches. And you know, that and the monologue at the top was kind of all we missed out on. Well, well Tasha, Tasha, you're on forgetting, fine. you're forgetting the uh, opening number in which a, uh, group of thousands of millionaires uh chanted along uh we are the champions uh singing along <laughs> with queen right so uh there there was that as the opening which was like that was a bad sign right it was it was a bad portent it was like a a black cat in the middle of the street like oh this is, this might be very bad right but then the rest of the show i i agree with you tasha it was largely okay and you miss the opening uh, montage, you miss the opening monologue, and you miss the painful bits where they try to hand out sandwiches to everyone or go across the street to the theater and talk to quote-unquote normal people. Um, oh, man. And... I had already forgotten about how excruciating <laughs> that piece was. Yeah. So uh, putting those aside, like, it's actually, hey, I actually uh, don't need any of that stuff. And uh, in general, it went like the, the, the overall flow of the show uh, did not end in catastrophe. So, so to that... Uh, to that end, it is like to the Academy's credit that they were able to pull that off. Uh, but let's talk about the awards themselves and, and some of the more memorable moments. Um, I guess I want to ask everyone if they have – like usually, you, you know, when we think back on these awards, these telecasts, right, there's usually moments that stick out to us. Moments that are like, oh, that's the thing I remember from that night. That sums that thing up, right? So let's uh, let's start with you, Tasha. Is there any particular moments that you want to highlight and then we'll go to uh, Jeff and Divinger about this? Well, it was pretty exciting seeing Spike Lee finally win an Oscar. The, oh, the, he, yeah. he he was previously handed an honorary award, but this is his first actual legitimate category Oscar mm. um, for uh, was it best adapted or best, best original? Yeah, it was uh, best um, adapted. Uh, best adapted yeah. screenplay for uh, Black Klansman, which yeah. he shared with several other people. But he was so, you know, I I think of Spike Lee as such a an angry provocateur. Like his his interviews are so often just about his kind of rage against the machine, and mm-hmm. especially lately, just how he feels just kind of disenfranchised by what the film industry has become, and seeing him just giddy with excitement like seeing his his hands shake with excitement he jumped and, onto samuel jackson and that was amazing it was really adorable so uh and you know he he did manage to to keep it together enough to get politics into the speech to like he's still noticeably spike lee he has beliefs that he wants to express mm-hmm. like he he's, didn't still got, go... he's still got a little mars blackman in him you know <laughs> oh yeah most definitely he, didn't he like try to get up after the green book win yeah, he tried People to storm out of the that. theater. And like, and, that's uh, Spike. That's like, he'll take the award, you know, he'll win, but he's going to leave when shit gets real, basically. Yeah, he, I mean, he also really came out against Green Book in, in a way that is yeah. is atypical for, because you're supposed to be, you're theoretically supposed to be gracious, right, after whoever wins. And uh, he was uh, pretty vocal in his in his critique uh-huh. of that film. 
Um, he's saying what a lot of people were thinking. Well, there, sure. Everything he said, I completely agree with. So I don't yeah. have any. I'm not. I do not take what I'm saying to at all. Uh, do not interpret what I'm saying to to be criti- criticizing Spike's behavior at all. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a great moment, and it was particularly redemptive, Tasha, because uh, Samuel L. Jackson had just been forced to declare that Green Book won best uh-huh. original, best original screenplay, right? Right, and he he and seemed he to really react did in not shock, look like he wanted to give them that award. <laughs> he, he, like when he looked at the envelope, he's like, "Really?" That seemed to be the look on his face. <laughs> if they just don't give you like the award or don't like announce it, is does that just mean you don't get the award? Yeah, did it really? Maybe happen? it should work that way. Right? If he had yeah. said something else, would it have really happened anyway? <laughs> uh, so great moment. Uh, what about you, Devinger? Any moments from the night that uh, really stuck out to you? Uh, oh, let me think here. Uh, I think the Into the Spider-Verse win yeah. was fantastic. Oh, just yeah. Seeing everybody up there on stage for that movie just you know brought a tear to my heart. Uh, Rami Malek, you know, winning Best Actor for a movie, you know, movie's not that great. But his speech, his like sheer enthusiasm of it, um, it was his co-star next to him, right, who's also his date for the awards. And like... I love that he he wasted speech time by kissing her three times. And like that is that is the pure emotion I want to see when somebody wins an award like this. And I followed Rami's career forever. Uh, he was actually in a Spike Lee movie a couple of years ago to The Sweet Blood of Jesus, I believe. Um, he's great. He's fantastic. So I'm glad he's getting some recognition. I definitely wish it was for a better movie. That's basically it. And also the uh, the Quran win was fantastic because seeing Guillermo del Toro up there, seeing that bro hug like that, that, that just made me feel all sorts of happy things for cinema and for the world. And the Oscar goes to this name. I can't pronounce Alfonso Cuaron. This is the fourth Oscar for Alfonso Cuaron. His second win tonight. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is a national treasure, right? And he just his, 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 <laughs> but which uh, nation? Uh, for for the world, uh, yeah. I guess. So he's a global treasure. treasure, an international yeah. treasure, international yeah, treasure. You, you know, he has he has such a pure love of cinema, and you know, he was saying in his speech in his uh, intro that he felt sick, but he's like, "There's no way I was going to miss this." You just feel the joy emerge from him whenever uh, he talks about movies. It's awesome. It was great to see him present the award to Cuaron, who uh, took the stage for the third time that night. Uh, to accept the award for Best Director for Roma um, after accepting it for Best Foreign Film and Best Cinematography. The first person in history, I think, to win for both Best, uh, for both best Director and Best Cinematography. Mm-hmm. So really impressive night for Cuaron. Jeff Kanata, um, your, any, any moments that stick out to you? Olivia Coleman, Olivia Coleman, Olivia Coleman. So uh, good. Um, ooh. It's genuinely quite stressful. <laughs> <It's>, um, uh, <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> Gone ask. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Um, uh, I have to thank lots of people. If, by the way, I forget anybody, I'm going to find you later. I'm going to give you all a massive snog, and I'm really sorry if I might forget now. Um, but Yorgos, my best director... <laughs> In the best film, and with Emily and Rachel, the two loveliest women in the world to fall in love with and to go to work with every day. I mean, you can imagine, it wasn't a hardship. And to be, to be 
in this category with these extraordinary women. And Glenn Close, I, you've been my idol for so long, and this is not how I, I wanted it to be. And I, I think you're amazing. I love you very much. I love you all. Um, thank you. Lindy King, my agent, who took me on over 20 years ago. Thank you so much. <laughs> and Olive and Hildy and um, Brynna, who made me do things that I, I said no to, but she was right. And um, uh, my mum and my dad. <laughs> I, well, you know. And um, <laughs> my kids are at home and watching. Look. Well, if you're not, then <laughs> well, kind of well done. But um, I sort of, <laughs> sort of hope you are. This is not going to happen again. Um, and uh, uh, and any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly you never know yeah, yeah. i mean like, so adorable yeah adorable, adorable perfect in every way just i just wanted to curl up next to her and just it just i just didn't think she had a shot in hell quite honestly um i thought she was the most deserving candidate i was i had said on this show that i would ride in the streets if she didn't win i'm so pleased i don't have to do that Yay. um you know, I thought it was going to be Glenn Close's year, and I thought Glenn Close and the wife actually was quite something. And I, I mentioned it on this show how un-Glenn Close-like it is. It's, it's such a um, vulnerable woman, which you, you rarely see her play. She's always such a strong woman. Um, and I also thought Lady Gaga, you know, gave a, a phenomenal performance as well and thought she had yeah. a real, real chance to steal it. But I'm so glad Olivia Coleman won. I, I loved her unprepared, raw, beautiful, awkward, uh, self-deprecating moment, uh, accepting the award. I just, I just think she's amazing. And she's, she's, uh, I think uh, her performance is very worthy and, um, I'm so glad it got recognized. It was my favorite part of the show. That moment when she realized she'd, she'd won, it's like she <laughs> physically got up there before it sunk in and she's standing there trying to pull herself together. And she says, this is hilarious. Right. <laughs> she also, that was yeah, such a pure moment. She says, this is never going to happen again, which is, yeah. so, it's so great. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it yeah, she's, mm-hmm. she was like noticing her other, uh, nominees in the category in the room and kind of acknowledging them. And it, it just was, it was lovely. It was lovely. And, um, yeah. She seems like a kind of person I just I would be best friends with. She just seems great, you know. Usually uh awkward speeches infuriate me cuz I'm like, dude, you have one chance in your life to say something in front of 20 million people. Uh practice, put some work into it, put some thought into it. But she hers was the only speech that was really unpolished that I felt was absolutely delightful, right? Yeah. Um, she just genuine charm, genuine shock. Uh, it was great. Uh, yeah. All right. I want to throw a couple of things out there that I really appreciated. Uh, one was uh, Bao, one for best animated short. And yeah. that movie is an oh, autobiographical yeah. film about me and my mom. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I thought that was uh, – it's it's great to see Asian-American representation on the stage. Domi Shi and Becky Neiman Cobb directed that movie. Um, speaking of Asian-American representation, Free Solo won uh, for Best Documentary Feature. Uh, Elizabeth Chai, Vassar Haley, and Jimmy Chin were, were co-directors of that movie. Looked amazing. And uh, they accepted the award with uh, with great – 
uh, with graciousness, and uh, it, it's a it's a great film, and I think everyone should should go check it out. Um, of course, Bing Liu is also up for that award for Mining the Gap, and uh, I was just gonna say, yeah, yeah the, I haven't seen Free Solo yet. I can't wait. I'm very excited to see it, um, and I understand, you know, based on your praise of it, it's deserving winner. But man, Minding the Gap, yeah, Minding the Gap I, I was, was great. Pulling for that, yeah. but but uh, yeah, I mean, Free Solo, like many many people risk their lives to make that sure. film. And uh, and and our, our is that the measure of of award it is. though? Is, that is the only measure then, that's relevant. Then we yeah. should be giving Tom Cruise best actor every year. <laughs> I don't deny that that's that's the case, Jeff. I mean, I, I think it's actually kind of a bummer that Mission Impossible Fallout was not recognized last night. So uh, that is a shame. But anyway, yeah, it was great to see those uh, awards. Uh, cool to see Ruth Carter win for best costume design and uh, Hannah Beachler and Jay Hart win for for best production design for Black Panther. And I was thinking to myself, hey. Whoa, Black Panther getting these uh, below-the-line awards. Maybe there is a chance that Black Panther could win Best Picture, <laughs> right? Like, every, I actually, uh, a lot of the prediction markets, I actually asked um, the Amazon Cylinder, right? Uh, I, I, I said, hey, Amazon Cylinder, who do you think is going to win? And it was a very delightful message. It's like, uh, I wish I could say Wakanda forever, uh, but I think Roma is going to take it home. That's what... The Amazon cylinder told me, right? And so it was based on, you know, based on prediction markets and stuff like that. And a lot of people thought Roma would take it home. I was like, hey, is, is, go is ahead. Is how you do your summer movie wager as well, Dave? <laughs> yep. Yep. That explains That's a lot. also how I guessed the Alita Battle Angel thing last week. Anyway, oh. um, so uh, uh, a lot of people thought Roma would take it home, right? And I was like, you know, maybe Black Panther has a chance. And that would be really cool because it would upset the balance of, oh, yeah. uh, of things, right? I would have been happy with that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Were the case. Um, well, actually – Pause before we get to that because that's going to take a while, guys. Pause before we get to that. Uh, I will also say that the uh, performance of Shallow by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper was transcendent. I mean, <laughs> not even just the performance, but the way it was shot. Oh uh, my God, just like yes. with a steady cam from behind the stage. Uh, it was amazing. Like the, the tears. In uh, I hosted a mm-hmm. little party at my house. Tears. Was his wife in the audience? Uh... <laughs> during that whole thing because that's like the entire world is like a kiss a kiss by the end <laughs> kiss, of that kiss yeah kiss. that's funny and more on the piano you know <laughs> it, it kind of felt like they did do more on yeah. the piano i mean yeah i i'm i'm over that song i you know it's it's very earwormy it's easy to get in your head uh it's i'm a little tired of it and when they started up i kind of went okay here we go and like within seconds i was mesmerized and i I'd credit the lighting yeah the way the camera caught them like from behind looking out mm. into that audience the way the audience was backlit if you look at at photographs uh, of that sequence, it's like the audience becomes these these strange little pink blobs. They look like CGI animation of people in the abstract. Right. Uh, the the backlighting is just it's so beautiful. You get the sense of a huge audience of breathless people like hanging on every moment. And then the the two figures, Bradley Cooper and, and Lady Gaga, the way they're lit is so warm. It was just it was visually gorgeous in a way that was mesmerizing. And then the force that they put into that performance, I, I couldn't look away. Yeah. Agreed. It's all about the eye contact too. Like the way they looked at each other through that whole thing was uh, it, uh, it made me feel things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Irina Shake is Bradley Cooper's girlfriend of four years. She sat between uh. Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper during the ceremony. <laughs> she had to. 
It's keep um, them away from each other. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put this out there. Uh, that was probably a long car ride home that night. That's gonna, I'm just gonna say that. So. Anyway, uh, okay, what what else? I, I think we have to get to the elephant in the room, which is yeah, that... I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. <laughs> what, the the awards is... ended right after Best Actor, right? <laughs> it was the one right before, yeah. Which is that last night, um, the, the movie for Best Picture, the, the award for Best Picture, uh, uh-huh. went to Queen Book. Okay. Now, uh, you know... I'm just gonna. I need to say this, right? When I saw A Star Is Born, when I saw A Star Is Born, I left that theater, and I thought to myself, you know what? That movie's gonna win Best Picture, but sure. I'm not like I don't think that movie is that good. But I'd be okay with it. Like I can understand, right? Yeah. Like why that movie would win Best Picture. Super crowd pleasing. It's making like hundreds of million of dollars worldwide. It's musical. It's about show business. These are all things. It's great that the emotional Academy... candy, yeah, you know, in yeah. a way, and it, yeah, I can see it. And it's like you know, I don't, I don't agree with that decision, but I'm gonna be, I'm gonna make peace with it. Star is born, perfectly fine movie uh, to receive best picture. I would not have in any number of multiverses thought that Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody would be like the most likely to win best picture, uh, and of course, Green Book finally took it. Uh, I mean, this is a movie that's going to go down as like this year's crash. I think it was it is a film oh, yeah. that will people will look back on and say like, "Wow, that was a uh, a, a suboptimal decision." Uh, and I actually think that that there is this tension between like the the old and the new Academy. There's a reason why like uh, they they've been changing the rules, letting in a bunch of uh, diverse people into the Academy recently. And there's, I think there's a reason why you see movies like Black Klansman getting nominated and Black Panther mm-hmm. getting nominated, and then also movies like Green Book getting nominated, right? And uh, and like there's this tension between like the old and the new, and like sometimes the old one, and sometimes the new one, and sometimes Green Book won Best Picture. Um, and it is, uh, you know, I, I really came out against this decision heavily online, and then like Justin Chang from LA Times wrote this article: Green Book is the worst Best Picture winner since Crash, and it, it was like. Brutal. Yeah. I, I felt yeah. ba- I felt bad for Green Book after reading this article because it was it's like, already dead. It was the most <laughs> vicious like takedown of Green Book I've seen. Um, but Tasha Robinson, what did you think of this Best Picture decision? So here's the thing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this by saying I have not seen Green Book, oh. and I did that very deliberately because when it first <laughs> came out, I looked at it and I said, "This is this year's The Blind Side. Mm. This is a movie that if I watch it." Uh, no matter how good it is, no matter how good the performances are. And, uh, you know, the, it stars some people that I respect very much and really want to see succeed. But at the same time, the dynamics of it, just from the very beginning, I, I thought were very hinky. And then I read mm-hmm. this article uh, called How Green Book and the Hollywood Machines Swallowed Donald Shirley Whole. Uh, it's at shadowandact.com. And I hugely recommend people read it if they're wondering why people are so angry about this movie, especially if they saw Green Book and thought it was a great movie and don't understand how anybody could be against it unless they're just deeply racist and, and hate you know, white people. The article breaks down how uh, how the screenwriter, well, the co-screenwriter, uh, Nick Vallelonga, who is the son of the the white character in the movie, 
systematically like kept Donald Shirley's family out of the the picture on this, how Donald Shirley did not want a movie made of his life, how the truth was warped for this movie in just the most cynical and, and unpleasant ways. There's a lot of very useful information in this and reading it. I thought to myself, I don't want to see this movie and I want to support it in any way. And I definitely don't want to have the experience of like liking it, against my will i know that that may sound a little a little weird right right but i i like i tweeted out just the the basic like here is an article that is good to read if you want to understand this controversy and i've been spending the entire day fielding angry angry tweets from people who tell me like it contains the word the words white savior so it's it's inherently racist uh-huh. this movie was a good movie so who cares whether it's true you know the you don't need to respect the truth you just need to make a good story and on and on and on and I understand why you would come to a place of, you know, this is a movie, not a biography. But at the same time, when you have somebody so demonstrably warping the truth to make his father look like the hero, when his father worked for Donald Shirley for a couple months before being fired, you know, it's just it's a, it's a lie. And it's it. I don't care how pretty a lie is if it's that self-serving a lie. That's interesting, Tasha. Uh, I mean, I I don't actually uh, – I agree that it is to some degree reprehensible that he made this movie against Don Shirley's wishes. Don, so for those who don't know, Don Shirley is the kind of genius musician uh, that is one of the main characters in Green Book, portrayed by Mahershala Ali, uh, who won Best Supporting Actor for, for that role last night. And um, uh, he is driven around the country. Uh, by uh, Tony Lip, I think, who is portrayed by Viggo Mortensen, also nominated yes. last night. And uh, I, you know, to some degree, I, I agree that it's like it's 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 bad to adapt a story uh, in, in a way that people don't want and against their wishes, right? I, I agree that that's a bad thing to do, but I think that kind of thing happens all the time, right? Like that 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 kind of biopic, like playing fast and loose with the truth, happens all the time. I think like my main issues with Green Book are that. Uh, well, first of all, it's it's interesting that it was written by Nick Vallelonga, who uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw, but like had there was there was a a tweet that from his past that was like he's uh-huh. a Trump supporter, and it was discovered that he had agreed with Donald Trump when he made that statement about how thousands of Muslims cheered uh, when the nine eleven towers went down, right? And and he's like Nick Vallelonga tweeted something like I saw it with my own eyes, you know, like, and so that was interesting, particularly because Green Book is a movie that is about uh, why racism is bad. Uh, and so the fact that the uh, guy who wrote Green Book, you know, was uh, kind of trading in that kind of racist language was uh, not a good look. But also fundamentally, I mean, I think Mark Harris summed this up really well when he wrote about Green Book at Vulture.com, but it's basically this idea that uh, both sides, there's, there's, there's nice folks, uh, perfectly good folks on both sides. Right. Of, of this, right? Like right. that the, the, hey, racists and people who aren't racists, we all have stuff to learn from each other, right? And uh, uh, why can't we all just get along and, and learn from each other, right? Why can't the racists and the non-racists get along? <laughs> uh, and like that's fundamentally the message of Green Book. And mm-hmm. I think it is a message that uh, will age poorly, that has already aged poorly to this day. We've already seen. What happens when um, racists and non-racists try to get together? We've already seen the results of these disastrous policies. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's more like I think it's the worldview of uh, maybe a lot of white viewers where it's like you can look at a movie and be like, oh, those are the racists. Right. What I'm doing, like I'm OK. 
But those people who are maybe a little more physical and loudly shouting obscenities and, you know, uh, at people of color, they're the really bad ones. I'm okay. I don't have to change anything about my life. Yeah, it allows this kind of complacency because it does take place in the past. And it's like, oh, yeah, what, what an uplifting message. Uh, about how we all have stuff to learn from each other and and how racism isn't that bad. And I, I think um, Sean Fennessy wrote a great piece for The Ringer as well about this where he's basically like he, – he, he was saying he didn't blame Academy voters for choosing this film because who wouldn't choose this like really pleasant version of reality, right? Mm-hmm. When we live in right. an extremely messy world right now. And uh, the idea that hey, we can all we can all solve racism by just like getting to know each other a little bit better. Like that's a that's a you know, why not? Why not try to propagate that uplifting message? Um, but I think it's one that you know, um, New York Times wrote a piece. I'm going to quote from here. One voter, a studio executive in his 50s, admitted that his support for Green Book was rooted in rage. He said he was tired of being told what movies to like and not like. Uh, much of the public debate about Green Book was turned on its handling of racial issues. Uh, which some see as woefully retrograde and borderline bigoted. End quote. So, uh, it, it it does feel like the the success of Green Book last night in, in some ways was like a white lash, right? That this idea of like liberal PC culture has gone too far. We why can't we enjoy a movie like Green Book? And of course, um, you know, uh, the the voters of the Academy showed that uh, they still can't. And that's that, that is the message we were left with at the end of uh, of the evening. Uh, and so, and it's such a strange message to have gotten in a night that was just so demonstrably about diversity. Yeah, you know, it, they, just people of color winning in categories that people of color have never won in before historically. Yep. People of color at an unprecedented rate as as presenters, like on stage. Yet people speaking Spanish, speaking unsubtitled Spanish to each other, like comfortably on stage, just as sort of a like a cultural expression. It felt like. Every moment of this this year's ceremony was about about diversity and and racial equality and everybody just kind of like getting along in exactly the way Green Green Book apparently orders us to. And then at the end, you have this like weird little turd on top of the Sunday. And and what's that about? There was like shock in my like uh, we hosted a few people at our our house last night, and there's like complete shock when green book won because i I don't think was there like one cheer from your (laughs) from your friend yeah there was a person that came over right um friend of a friend came over to our house last night and uh the first thing they said was hey like green book was great the favorite was okay loved bohemian rhapsody vice is one of my favorite films of the year which you need an eject button for these situations yeah i was just Just like like, oh my gosh this is um this is my nightmare that I've entered into. But no, she was she was perfectly pleasant, and we had a we had a lovely evening. Uh, but uh, yeah, we were all shocked. I think every everyone thought it was going to be Roma, right? Like we all uh, just I thought it was a foregone conclusion. Um, but no, nope. there's already an award for that, though. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get you get that award, and unfortunately, everybody feels good and like, okay, well, yeah, well, it we got, gave, it we got gave Roma best, best foreign film, and now yeah. uh, we can do something else with best yeah. best picture, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, I think the green book decision will go down in history as like another crash. It will be like the decision that people refer to as like, I can't believe they chose that. Right. Um, we'll see. We'll see. That's, that's my prediction. Um, any other moments from the evening that people feel like they want to mention any highlights, any lowlights, any disappointments? Uh, the only other thing I want to mention is just that first man, uh, a movie that like three months ago, I thought was going to sweep this thing. Right, like was gonna uh, really four, four or five months ago before it came out. Right when there was like rapturous reviews, I thought First Man was gonna like it was it was pure Oscar bait. It was gonna really do well. 
only won one award. That's not a feel good movie, sir. Like, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, they don't. It's true, but like many Oscar choices are not feel good movies. You know, Roma is right, not a feel good right. movie. Um, any of the uh, best documentaries are not feel good movies. You know, or best um, uh, best short documentaries are not feel good movies. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, First Man. I was surprised that it was like completely shut out. Didn't even get nominated for best score, even though that's one of my favorite scores of the year. Um, so it was a little bummed about that. Um, but uh, that was a- the only thing I wanted to call out. Jeff, go ahead. I have another moment, and I know. Um... I, I've seen some criticism online about uh, a, a year that is about diversity uh, calling out a, a moment with a white dude doing something good. But I, I just loved what Chris Evans did uh, when uh, Regina King won and he just sort of put his arm out and helped her up the stairs. I, yeah, I, good. I, not to take anything away from Regina King, who does, you know, who who had a lovely moment in her own right. I, I don't think calling out that takes anything away from her nor do i intend to but uh, just chivalry and decency and courteousness uh it, he's it's captain america he's got to do it he's captain of <laughs> fucking america and th- it, there's up. never been anybody like yes i'm so glad chris evans is captain america because that's <laughs> the america i want i want an Man. america where uh the guy who's in the position to do that does it and knows not to go all the way up the stairs with her, just gets her enough up. That's not about him. Mm-hmm. He, re- he retreats and he's, he's in service of others. Yeah. And uh, I wish more humans were took moments to be in service of others selflessly like he did. And I, and I, and I, mm-hmm. I just thought that was beautiful. And speaking of Regina King, I really wish Beale Street got more love. Yeah. That oh, movie, yeah for sure. That movie has stuck with me in a way I think few do. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just wish more people appreciate it. I've talked to people who've walked out of Beale Street, and I don't know if I should be friends with them anymore. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a weird movie to, to, I don't know, enjoy at times. Beale Street Especially didn't even get... In, yeah, go mm-hmm. ahead, Tasha. Just, like, costuming and cinematography and production design. I mean, the acting in that film is, is fantastic, but the look of it, the look of it and the sound of it is just so striking and, again so warm like it it feels watching that movie feels like being under a, a big fluffy comforter yeah a very brightly colored big fluffy comforter it feels like experiencing that first love basically it's such a weird unique thing yeah um beale street didn't even get nominated for best picture i think it definitely should deserve to be up there uh regina king's performance really great as well i i, I kind of um went mildly crazy today uh when like contemplating the idea that rami malik won for for best actor i mean i think that he is a great actor i think that he deserves a lot of praise but i just think of the 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 level of difficulty between (laughs) what rami malik had to do and what bradley cooper had to do for a star is born i do i do feel bad for bradley cooper it's like i i've done so much or christian bale for that matter Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess. But I mean, like, you know, the dude, like, A Star is Born was Bradley Cooper's project. You know, like, he, uh, I, I know that he, uh, the Star is Born, there's been other versions of it. So I know, like, the plot is not that different, but, like, this rendition of it was his. Dude, like, taught himself how to sing and play guitar, took voice lessons, like, changed the way he spoke, um, created a whole character out of nothing. And uh, and actually performed the songs on the soundtrack, uh-huh. and was rewarded with Jack Squat last night. <laughs> listen, um, listen, he gets to 
basically make I love to Lady Gaga on stage. So yeah, that's he not wins. Jack Squat. It's dude. true. And, you know, there's that scene in Mad Men season four where Don Draper's like, "That's what the money's for." Um, and yeah, I guess Bradley Cooper is going to do just fine, right? Like he's 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 going to have a long, happy life as a you know yeah. billionaire. Or he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. But I, it, that's the thing. That's why I'm so angry. Is because <laughs> this this ceremony made me feel sympathy for Bradley Cooper. You see. Um, yeah, but but think of it this way. How dare they? Yeah, Rami they? Malek had to put up with Brian Singer. Well, that you 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 bring up something yeah. else, uh, yeah. Jeff, which is that uh, I, I I saw a tweet that really summed up the night really well. Someone said, "Wow, it's it's really a great night for the person who, whoever directed uh, Bohemian Rhapsody," <laughs> yeah. because uh, nobody mentioned the words Brian Singer the entire evening, which I thought was I, it's just interesting that as a society we're just that's just the way. We've all just agreed that's how it's going to be, right? Like, I was half expecting Rami Malek to say something if he had that opportunity, and he, uh, he at least he he chose love, I guess. He's been doing a lot to to not, and I'm sure yeah. he he's been coached, but I mean he's been doing a lot to to not bring that up and not dwell in that moment, and I can see why you would like at that ceremony. You know, that the whole thing like left such a sour taste in everyone's mouth. I like, why would they like, why, why would they say, well, despite Brian Singer and having to deal with Brian Singer, we're here, you know, in theory, it is about that, uh, you know, that, that chivalry, that moment of celebration, like you're in theory, you're there for positivity and just saying, oh, by the way, everybody, we really hate Brian Singer so much. We're sorry. We're sorry that we keep bringing him back into the world where we hope that it's going to stop at this point, guys. I think uh, we also we've seen what happens to people who kind of spoil the mood, too. Wasn't it uh, Kim Basinger uh, calling out uh, do the right thing? And that, that led to a big blacklist for her, right? Uh, I don't recall the incident you're describing, Devendra, but yeah, I, I that, mean, that was a whole, that was partially like when do the right thing. You know, that was the driving Miss Daisy year, I yeah. believe. Yeah, and as, as Spike Lee put it, whenever yeah. someone's driving, I I lose at the Oscars. Is what he said. Um, <laughs> yeah, because the year that Do the Right Thing came out uh, was also the year that Driving Miss Daisy I think won Best Picture that year. So, um, but uh, yeah, there was a, there was a collective amnesia about Brian Singer, and and that's uh, the way apparently uh, it's going to go uh, at these award shows. So it's I don't I don't see it as amnesia. I don't see it as you know, we've forgotten that he was there. I don't even see it as sweeping him under the rug. I see the film as having having superseded and moved on past him, you know, having picked up another director, having gotten to this level of achievement. I don't see why they would bring up like the unpleasant place that that mm-hmm. originally birthed it as opposed to focusing on where it managed to get once it dumped him. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree. I, I do think f- from what I see online, there's like a desire for people to to say something about it. Um, but I, I, I can see like, it both what, ways. What right? would be appropriate? What would you like to hear them say? Well, I don't know that it's my it's my desire that they say like I, I think I in many ways agree with what you're saying, Tasha, that like uh, that there is a way that bringing it up um, is bad. Right. That it like uh, that this this event is a way to celebrate their uh the achievements of these people and that bringing it up in some ways is like uh is you know poisoning the well a little bit um but i do think there are there are people who would like to see him condemned or that or even the the really weird situation acknowledged right that there is another guy that took over and helped bring it over the finish line like no yeah. one talked and didn't about get that the credit either. yeah didn't get any credit, for it, right? credit so but it's just like i think there's just it's just understood like that that's not 
talked about, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, so I thought it's that was movie magic, baby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, anyway, uh, any other thoughts? I think overall, it you know, other than Green Book winning, it was fine. It, you know, yeah. there were some really great moments. There were some terrible moments. There were some awkward speeches. It was fine. Um, and then Green Book won, and then really <laughs> fouled my mood for the rest of the day. So really Aquafina. looking forward to going through this next year all over again. <laughs> I can't wait Aquafina until Cats wins adorable. Best Pictures. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Aquafina and John Mulaney on stage. Yeah, yeah. Who do you guys think is going to win Best Picture next year? Right, Cats. You know, is it going to be Cats, Avengers End? You, do you think the the Academy might, might do a Return of the King and give Avengers Endgame a bunch of awards? Right. No. What do you think? We'll, we'll see. Anyone? We'll see. Okay. Anyway. It's Not when you have a Tarantino around. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be Avatar 2. By the way, uh, Jeff Kanata, I couldn't help but think of you when that Rolex ad came on. <laughs> and uh, it, acknowledged the cultur- it acknowledged the cultural relevance of Avatar because you saw yeah, like maybe. full shots of like, uh, I think it was a Neytiri uh, figurine. And I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, putting Avatar back in the cultural conversation just like Jeff intended. James Cameron had to do a commercial to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, it's really stretching there. I will say, did you guys see the teaser for The Irishman? Yes. Which I think was the most baffling 30 seconds of TV (laughs) I've seen in a very long time. Uh, It was just a bullet. It was just a bullet (laughs) falling. The cast's name and people saying, I think people just saying The Irishman. Or something that, like that's the actual the Gabo trailer. ad. It was that's like the a... Simpsons Gabo ad. If it I was. could, if I could be in charge of all trailers, that's how every trailer would be. <laughs> I mean, leaving me confused and baffled and not yeah. excited to see your movie. That is, it's just that is marketing this, right there. This is coming out. Here's who's in it. It reminds you me should of those. Decide uh, to see it. Sometimes there are commercials for books and novels, and they just try to make a really like dramatic, like this author did this. The next story by author. It's basically that. <laughs> That's how movies should be sold. Shouldn't oh, be yeah. like, here's oh, the yeah. Cliff Notes version of the story. Here's the I, biggest moments. Here's the yeah. climax of the film. I, no, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm with you on that. I think you, Jeff. This was just a cast list. Yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. I think here's Netflix really Don't lucked you... out that every actor they wanted to advertise had an eye in their name, right? I think uh-huh, that's because uh-huh. uh, the bullet <laughs> is falling and it becomes the eye. Anyway. Uh, the That's Irishman. How it was cast. Yeah, that that might be the uh, best picture next year. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Netflix. Yeah, direct yeah. to Netflix, right? Yeah. I that do think it's coup. great that uh, y- you know it's still possible, guys. That Amazon might be the first ever streaming service to win best picture. So I am. Uh, I'm psyched. I'm psyched to <laughs> have chances in the future. So Call. anyway. All right, well, that's our, our conversation about the Oscars. Uh, hope you all enjoyed that conversation and that you had some fun uh, at the at watching the Oscars last night. It was, uh, I thought it was pretty brisk overall, three hours and 20 minutes or so. Uh, it came to a, a very unceremonious end. Uh, Julia Roberts is like, well, apparently that's the end. <laughs> and she's like, close <laughs> the show. I was like, wow. Uh, always weird how those things end. Go home. So here's the, the question: Go home. Yeah. Is this the is this the new normal? Is is the, are they just going to have no hosts? Apparently, the think? producer was non-committal about whether <laughs> they would have a host next year or not. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they if just they just had no hosts. Aquafina and John Mulaney together forever. Yeah. That's all. It sh- I, I think it should be uh, not a host, but you have we're announcing who's doing the opening welcome. Mm. Uh-huh. You know, you have an opening welcome 
which is either a musical number a la Hugh Jackman or, you know, and Billy Crystal, or you have, you know, uh, John Mulaney or whoever you know, the stand-up comedian du jour is do a, you know, 10 minute roast of the people in the audience. And then, uh, then no hosts after that. It's fine. Yeah. You know, Call it, it the opener. Call it the opening. Yeah. Act. I mean, I I'm all for that. I, I just don't see at this point, so many articles were written leading up to the Oscars about how it's just a completely thankless job. You know, you, you yeah, get up there, yeah. you're fed a lot of awkward stuff that you have to try to make sound natural. And then the next morning, all of the articles are about how terrible you were and how you should have been pulled off stage with a hook, like some sort of a villain. And that's pretty much the, the gig is just uh, have a horrible time and be miserable. Like, I, I think why, I have the why solution. Why would you want to do that? Make it like the Hunger Games. And it's a lottery. <laughs> And they just throw a bunch of celebrity names in there. Somebody gets called and, uh, you know, it's certain doom. It's certain doom for them. So another celebrity can be like, I, I volunteer as tribute and we'll take over. And we'll Chris do it. Evans and there you go. will helpfully step forward and, and say, yes. I volunteer as tribute, like while holding his uh, his jacket delicately. I like it. <laughs> another aspect uh, of why it's a thankless job is, uh, and I've read this, that it's, basically everyone is really stressed out. Like no one wants to uh, listen to your antics. Right, they just want to know whether they want or not. So it's, you're you're preventing them. You know, you're like the the kid that asks the question at the end of class, preventing everyone from going to lunch or something. You know, like <laughs> um, no one's a fan of that. So uh, we'll see what happens next year. Maybe they will go hostless forever, and that'll be interesting to see. But Devendra, uh, I was really hoping when you when you tapped in Hunger Games that what mm-hmm. you meant was that they were just going to like throw 10 celebrities on stage and oh, make yeah. them fight to the death. This is what like, I mean. The That's privilege. the opening ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, yeah. I think it was the 2010 Tonys where they had Neil Patrick Harris and, and Hugh Jackman sort of pretend that both of them were there to host. And then they kind of did a, like they did a musical duel. I would, I would absolutely show up for the mock dueling mm-hmm. of ceremony, like masters of ceremonies, each trying to kind of take the Oscar stage. Like, I, I think that would be a really entertaining spectacle once. Yeah. All right, folks, let's move on. Uh, before we get to our review of How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, we got to thank all the people that donated to the show this week. We've got a bunch of donors we got to catch up on. Um, first, uh, Joshua Chessmore and Sebastian Carlson, who are subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. And also uh, donors, Jeffrey Armantrout, Matthew Javanshir, Richard Polish, Neil B. from London, uh, Zachary S. from Las Vegas, Nevada, Henry from Chicago, Illinois, James C. from Englewood, Colorado. Uh, and then Bobby in Columbus writes in with this message. Hey, guys. I'm making this donation in the name of my brother Dan for his birthday. A huge part of our relationship is made up of seeing movies, uh, making shorts, and, of course, talking about each of your opinions about the same movies we see each week like we're all close friends. I can say with 100% confidence that nothing would make make him happier than hearing David Chen wish him a happy birthday. That sounds totally sarcastic, but I promise it's not. Keep up the great work and the limericks, Jeff. Mm. This, Engli- this English teacher approves. That's Bobby from Columbus. Um, it's too bad. It's just a real shame that Dave Chen refuses to wish anyone a happy birthday. That's not his true. Policy. Ha- happy birthday. Uh, happy birthday very much to, I think it's Dan, right? Um, yeah. My, to, to Bobby's brother, Dan, in Columbus. Happy birthday. And also, I think this email was actually sent to us like weeks ago, so... The birthday might have passed. This is the Happy downside. belated birthday. This Dan. is the downside of recording a bunch of episodes at once. Uh, my bad, guys. Okay. Um, Jonathan from Finland writes, and you guys not only give me insights regarding movies. No, I'm sorry. I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping emails here. Sebastian 
from Sweden. Uh, Stockholm, Sweden writes in, you guys not only give me insights regarding movies, but also life itself to see you grow and juggle career, life, hobbies, and creating the best and most insightful movie podcast I know of other than the next picture show. Is I was great... going to say, <laughs> take that, Tasha. Yeah, take that in your face, Tasha. No, um, is a great inspiration. You inspire... My face, my precious face. <laughs> you inspire me to do the same and pursue my dreams of working in industries I love and giving back to my community by working with entertainment also in my spare time. Thanks. That's from Sebastian from Stockholm, Sweden. Sebastian, thanks for the lovely note. Jonathan from Finland writes in, Hey, guys, I was hoping you'd say happy birthday to my friend Christopher, who's turning 31 on the 26th of February. Nailed it, guys. We got it in right under the wire. Uh, <laughs> I hope he downloaded this immediately. I hope he downloads this immediately, right, upon <laughs> it being published. We've been friends since we were kids and have always shared our love of movies in the Slash Filmcast. We've been inspired by Jeff and Dave's unsullied lifestyle to show each other movies we think the other person will like without any introduction at all. I'm Wonderful. talking love that. sitting down, eyes closed, while the other person sets up the film and then watching it. That's that is, awesome. That is not only a great way of eliminating the what should, what should we watch conversation, but it forces you to check out movies you wouldn't have seen otherwise. It's the pure Unsullied experience. Wow. Yeah, a true paragon of the Unsullied lifestyle. Yeah. I am – I am. I bow down to you, sirs. Well done. That's from Jonathan from Finland wishing Christopher happy birthday. And finally, uh, Albert Gross from Los Angeles says, hey, guys, appreciate the many hours you put into the podcast. I know it's more work than most people probably understand. The Slash Filmcast is by far the podcast I look forward most to each week. Been listening for years and love getting to learn about all the new movies I need to watch. Uh, oh, also, Albert got us each a AMC large popcorn voucher uh, that we can use to throw popcorn all over ourselves when something scary oh. happens in the movie. So I'm sure the theaters does, will appreciate that. Yeah. How 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 could he possibly have known that we go to AMC theaters? Dave? Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. We've never mentioned it on the show before. Anyway, thanks so much for all of your donations and all the lovely messages. We really appreciate it. PayPal.me slash filmcast. That's PayPal.me slash the word filmcast if you want to donate to us. Um, we always appreciate it. But do not ever donate if it causes you any kind of hardship. Uh, if you want to support us for free, just leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever your podcasts are downloaded and listened to. We'd really be grateful for that. But yeah, the money does help as well. So paypal.me slash filmcast or go to slashfilm.com, use the slash filmcast tab and the PayPal links on the side of the page. Let's get to our review of How to Train a Dragon, The Hidden World. Hey, bud, wait up. Well, I started out all alone. He's not the only one. like a bright a light fury yeah yours is better probably there is an armada with enough cages for all of our dragons this is a new kind of enemy we need to find the hidden world i will destroy everything you love That was from the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. When Hiccup discovers Toothless isn't the only Night Fury, he must seek the hidden world, a secret dragon utopia, before a hired tyrant named Grimmel finds it first. Uh, So this is a Slash Filmcast, and we're here today with Tasha Robinson. And I I have to say that one of the reasons I wanted Tasha Robinson to to join us for this, this show is because... Tasha Robinson a while ago wrote a piece for 
a website that no longer is publishing new articles, but it's still on the internet. TheDissolve.com, a great film website. Um, and the article is entitled, We're Losing All Our Strong Female Characters to Trinity Syndrome. This article, which, Tasha, I think you've described as the most popular thing you've ever written in your entire life, right? Uh, as far as I know. I mean, I haven't been able to track the traffic, obviously, in the three years since the Dissolve went off the air. But at the time, it certainly was. And it's certainly the thing that seemed to have the most reach in terms of uh, professionals like John August discussing it on their podcast, in terms of feedback that I've gotten over the years from people in the filmmaking industry about how this article has been discussed in uh, in story rooms and writers rooms. It seems to be the thing that's had the most impact on people. And in a very small way, like I, I know that Trinity Syndrome is now taught as a concept in screenwriting classes, in storytelling classes, in uh, fiction writing classes, because I've heard from teachers who've who've brought it up and are teaching it as a concept. So in terms of impact, it's it's probably certainly been the most enduring thing I've ever yeah, written. I mean, you, you have shaped the cultural conversation on this topic. And I mean, you've shaped the way I, I David Chen, look at films, right? I, like whenever uh, a quote unquote strong female character appears in a film, this is the article I think about, right? So can you sum up Trinity Syndrome just for those who don't know? And then I, I want to read some of your questionnaire here too. I think it's very useful. Uh, so what, what is the main thrust of this piece? Which by the way, uh, I think one of the things that prompted it was the introduction to Hiccup's mom in How to Train Your Dragon 2, Right. Mm -hmm. We were introduced to his mom and, and she kind of suffers from Trinity syndrome in a way. But yeah, tell us. Yeah, about it. the article came from seeing uh, relatively close together uh, the Lego movie and How to Train Your Dragon 2, which both introduce these female characters who are just really interesting. They're they're tough. They're funny. They're serious. They're complicated. And then they don't do anything in the movie except stand by as the male protagonist uh, meets them, surpasses them and saves their life. Uh, and it, it made me think of Trinity in The Matrix and how Trinity has just one of the most badass introductions of a, a female character in cinema and then she pretty much spends the rest of the Matrix just kind of like watching as uh, as Neo like walks into the story as a complete unknown uh, who I mean, he is the one he is the chosen one with all of the skill and he, he comes in able to do nothing. And then he learns from her, surpasses her and uh, takes over everything. So the idea behind Trinity Syndrome was just it's. At the time that this was written, the the idea of the strong female character, the the character, the female character who isn't a sexual prize for the male protagonist to win, who has her own interests and her own abilities and is is tough and rough and kick ass, was a big thing in the culture. And the idea behind Trinity Syndrome was effectively, okay, that's a great first step. Now, once you've introduced your super badass female character, have her do something, anything that's important to the plot. Have her want something anything that's mm -hmm. important to her uh and ultimately it just comes down to like is this a character who does something in the story or is it just a character who like looks really cool when they're posing and and kicking people's asses yeah and i think you have a questionnaire at the end of this article that is uh it, it, it is a questionnaire i have applied to movies i have seen right when i watch a movie that has a character like that. I, I think back to this questionnaire, and uh, I'll just read this. There's uh, nine, there are eight questions here, but I'm not going to read them all. I'll just read the first few. Question one: After being introduced, does your strong female character then fail to do anything fundamentally significant to the outcome of the plot? Uh, question two: If she does accomplish something plot significant, is it primarily getting raped, beaten, or killed to motivate a male hero? Question three: 
could your strong female character be seamlessly replaced with a floor lamp with some useful information written on it to help a male hero? Question four. Is the <laughs> fundamental point of your plot that your strong female character is the strongest, smartest, meanest, toughest, or most experienced character in the story until the protagonist arrives? Uh, and I think those are just re- – like I, I never had thought of looking at these characters through that lens before. And it, it has helped mm-hmm. me to be a lot more skeptical of the art that I consume. So um, uh, you know, props to you for this this article. Uh, I'm gonna We're going to link to it in the show notes. I'd encourage anyone listening to this to read that article. But sadly, Tasha, I think if you were concerned about Trinity Syndrome in How to Train Your Dragon 2 – I'm not sure that How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World, does anything to solve that. Yeah, what it's do you... only 10 times worse. Right? <laughs> yeah, what do, you, what do you think of how the third film handles Trinity Syndrome, and what are your overall thoughts on the movie? I, I, I actually think it's a little better, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing that because it sounds like Devendra would disagree. Yeah, I feel like they, they went out of their way, I guess, to give Valka a few things to do in the story. Valka being the mother of, of Hiccup, the Viking... Uh, now chieftain of his like tiny little dragon infested town of Burke. Uh, Valka is his long lost mother voiced by Kate Blanchett. And the problem with her in, in two was that she had this rich, complicated backstory because she was originally written as the villain of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the writer director ended up changing that. And so she has this complicated introduction and is a rich character. And then she mostly drops out of the story, except when she needs uh, somebody to save her life, which happens like twice in five minutes. In How to Train Your Dragon 3, she's not a particularly foregrounded character, but she does go off by herself and do some scouting. She does some fighting. Uh, She doesn't need her life saved any more than anybody else does. It's she's not really a an impressive or terribly interesting character, but I would argue that most of the characters that are not Hiccup, the protagonist, are all that interesting. They all get their tiny little arcs and their tiny little bits of business, and it really doesn't add up to much. So I don't think that she's she ends up paying off on the level of her introduction in yeah. How to Train Your Dragon 2. But I also don't think she's treated any worse than anybody else in the film. That's fair enough. And uh, overall, you know, I read your review uh at, at theverge.com and it sounds like you were pretty disappointed with this one yeah i was pretty disappointed the original how to train your dragon i think is it it felt like a turning point for dreamworks that movie and kung fu kung fu panda just seemed like dreamworks animation coming into its own as a a teller of like original stories like on a level with Pixar, you know, emotional, dramatic, exciting, extremely well animated stories. And How to Train Your Dragon remains a big favorite of mine. But the second one felt like a little bit of a stumble. And then the third one to me is just like, it's empty spectacle. And it's some really good spectacle. I mean, it's a beautiful looking film. But it's the the villain is just kind of a weak retread of the villain from two. There's a whole bunch of uh, visual business involving Hiccup's dragon, Toothless, like courting the first female dragon he's ever seen. She's the first female dragon he's ever seen that just kind of amounts to a retread of a lot of the romantic business and space dancing in (laughs) WALL-E. And then there's a whole bunch of comedy business that kind of goes nowhere. 
There was it's, so much. Oh my god, uh, were we watching a National Geographic dragon baiting spectacle? It was dragon softcore porn after a point, basically. <laughs> there was there was a lot of hot and heavy dragon action in that movie. I th- that I bait to black they, was on I, purpose. I think they boned down. I mean, I don't know how dragons do oh, it, yeah. but I think they we got see them boned down. by the end. They absolutely oh, yeah. boned down. It was just like an Avatar, except maybe a step below the Avatar like love sequence. Uh, there is a courtship dance in this movie, and then it fades to black as they dive into the mist yeah. together. It's like, oh, yeah, you know what's going down. on there? <laughs> yeah. You know what's going on there? <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, actually but... literally bone down. Okay, uh-huh. okay. okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> get it. So... <laughs> Anyway, Tasha feels like this is this movie, uh, you know, did not rise to the levels of How to Train Your Dragon One, which yeah, for for me, you know, remains a, a brilliant film. I actually oh, came sure. home from yeah. watching How to Train Your Dragon Three, put in the Blu-ray for How to Train Your Dragon One, just to kind of compare. the The animation is really crude compared to what we have today. Oh yeah, um, Man. but I, I just couldn't stop watching it because it was I like watched I started in the middle, watched all the way to the end because it was so. Uh, it's a movie that I think still retains its power, uh, and this one not quite as much, unfortunately. And it sounds like you think like it cribbed a lot of moments from like other better Pixar movies, right? So. From better Pixar movies and from better from How to Train Your Dragon movies. I mean, the one of the most memorable images from that first film is that moment where uh, Hiccup first reaches out to Toothless and just kind of like flinching away from him and reaching out to him at the same time. It's kind of a perfect illustration of like what it feels like to be vulnerable when you're trying to make a friend, you know, you have to open yourself up to emotional danger in order to put yourself out there to form a relationship. And it's just, it's a great image. And then then they do it again in this movie. Uh, I think the movie actually pokes fun at the idea that's redoing things, right? Because at one point they're trying to draw the light fury and they're like okay just take what you drew for toothless and paint it white okay like that's yeah. it just do that again well that's not the only moment that happens i want to talk about that later yeah. Dendra, during spoilers but yeah um but yeah yeah uh, tasha you know fair point that this is like many sequels it draws upon like very specific references from its predecessors so um but it's also the fundamental message of this movie is eventually you got to grow up and you have to give away the things you love you have to let go of them which is Entirely the message from Toy Story 3, Yeah. except that in Toy Story 3, it was, you know, these are literally the toys of your childhood. Give them to somebody who will love them like you do. Toothless isn't a toy. You know, Toothless is this. He's he's his friend. He's his horse. He's his dog. He's his cat. <laughs> he, he's his partner through life. And the message that you've got to let go of your beloved pet dog horse cat thing uh, <laughs> in order to grow up. It's just such a weird message. It's like, are people watching this movie going, oh, you know, in order to to become an adult, in order to come to my own, I need to, like, throw my dog out into the woods where he'll be happier because he'll find it's, a lady it dog. It's more like an allegory for parenthood in a way. But yeah, there's stuff we could talk about in spoilers. Yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Jeff Kanata, what did you think of this movie? Well, Dave. I guess you could say my thoughts about this movie are best summed up in the form of a limerick. I like how you like oh, no. really really quiet with the Well Dave today. Like you're you're <laughs> switching it up, Jeff. Like it's very very plaintive Well Dave today. Uh Tasha, you're familiar with the fact that Dave mandates that we have to have a limerick in the show. I, I assume uh, he's it, it's militant and it's honestly 
very taxing on me personally, but I do it because I don't want to see Dave angry. Yeah, no, it's true. So, Nobody likes him when he's angry. Nobody likes him when he's angry. Nobody likes him anyway, but not especially oh. when he's... <laughs> uh, all right, here's the, here's, here's, here's the limerick. The first two laid a foundation worthy of standing ovation, but the third one has got a lackluster plot elevated by great animation. <laughs> so I basically agree with almost every single thing you said, Tasha, and I think you probably articulated it better than I will, but I'll be redundant anyway. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think the movie is absolutely gorgeous. I think the animation is beautiful. I think there are long stretches. I would, I have no way of knowing this for a fact, but I would venture a guess that this movie has fewer words than either of its predecessors. There are long stretches where no words are said at all. And the entire story is expressed through animation. And, uh, the animation is lovely. It it is clear and, uh, full of character and creates beautiful little poignant moments uh, and, and I'm impressed by the artistry on display, as you said, with the spectacle, because the, the the movie does get to spectacle, but also in these lovely character moments. There's stuff that we're you know we're seeing now that that computers are capable of doing. Like there's an extended sequence on a beach where like each grain of sand moves naturally, and there's people are you know drawing things in or people d- dragons are drawing things in uh, the sand. It's just it's amazing. It's visually stunning film. Uh, so I sort of appreciated it on that level, but boy, was I disappointed by this movie. I, I like you guys. I adore the first how to drain your dragon. And actually I, it sounds like I like the second one more than everyone else here too. Uh, I really like those first two movies. And I remember when the second one came out and it didn't do particularly well at the box office. I was really worried that we weren't going to see the end of this trilogy. Cause I had, understood that that they had in, imagined it as a trilogy from the outset and i really was hoping that we get this third film so i'm glad this happened but i i think this movie completely fails to be that thing it the last 10 minutes of this movie i wish was what the movie was about but the movie isn't about that and we'll talk more in spoilers obviously but it it like crams in being the third movie of a trilogy right at the end. And instead of being about that from the beginning, it, it does not earn its last 10 minutes whatsoever. It gets completely sidetracked being a love story. And this new villain that same, you know, new boss, same as the old boss, uh, that again is, is spectacular and visually exciting. And it has some fun moments, but it just, it's a new story. Story. It's not it's not the culmination of the time we've spent with these characters in any stretch. And then, as you said, it, it introduces this new concept, this new place we're supposed to have arrived at that makes no sense. But more than that, would have been interesting if that's where we were headed the whole time. Mm-hmm. It, like, I want to see that movie where. And again, I, we got to talk about this more in spoilers, so yeah. I, I, I'll Let's, I'll derail myself. But um, I, I, I I'm I'm very disappointed by this movie, and and I think it's still enjoyable on a certain level. But as someone that came in really excited about this franchise and hoping for a 
uh, a stirring summation of, of the years of, of investment into these characters, it, I think, wastes that opportunity completely. Devinder Hardwar, take us through your thoughts. I'm surprised. I feel like I might be the person who likes this movie the most on this episode. Um, but to me, this movie feels like Return of the Jedi, right? It'll never live up to the first film. Um, but I think it I, I think it does wrap up the story very well. And philosophically, I think it does something really interesting. Yeah, it's a lot like Toy Story 3, but it's still really interesting to see a series that started out with the whole idea of being like these dragons, like, oh, they can be our friends and they can live with us and it can be a nice, happy coexistence. I think shattering that coexistence in a way, uh, and we'll talk more about that, is really interesting for a kids movie. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not as memorable as the first one. I don't think the characters are as strong, uh, but I enjoy it a lot more than the second one. Because uh, aside from having Hiccup's mom being a cool, lost badass, uh, I don't think that movie was super memorable or did much. And, you know, um, Peter Soretta or somebody at Slash Film, was it Peter? Uh, Hoi Tran Bui wrote up the other ending that uh, the director was planning for How to Train Your Dragon 2. And I think a lot of the problems we're having with that movie and this one uh, kind of stem with that. Because the initial idea was to have Hiccup's mom be the villain in a way, but not like, you know, not like violently opposing him, but philosophically saying like what you're trying to do doesn't work. And it would end the movie with them being on opposing sides. I'm sure that's a tough sell for a kid's movie, but I think that would have set up this movie in a much more interesting way yeah. to have that villain from two and 100%. to make it all more meaningful, basically. Yeah. Like it, 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 it yeah, it's a pure Darth Vader thing, but in a more interesting way, I'd say. Um, so I'm really I think we're feeling the impact of making that change now. And at the end of the day, like we have a villain that's so much like the second one. Uh, and yeah, the movie just isn't as memorable. The thing with Hiccup's mom for me. Um, yeah, she has a couple tasks to do in this movie, but she is she is almost a complete non-presence. They don't really have any time together after the whole discovery sequence in the second movie where she was such an important character. And so such an amazing person for Hiccup to find, she is just a side character here, you know, just another one of the, the crew uh, in their Island. And she does some scouting and stuff, but she just doesn't have much. She doesn't really have much that defines her as a character. I'd say the kids have a lot more going on because we spend even more time with them. So that that's kind of what disappointed me about her too. So yeah, that, that's my overall thoughts. I do think um, it still got me in the end and where it takes a story is really interesting. And yeah, the, the animation is beautiful. It's just yeah. completely beautiful. And the fact that, yeah, this movie turns into silent, basically a silent film at times. Uh, but I think using animation in the best ways possible, it reminds me of some sequences from like Incredibles 2, you know, um, where there's very little dialogue. It's just pure action on screen telling a story. That's what I love most about the series. So I'm glad we got to see that again. Devendra, right. in that, that write-up of the original ending or mm -hmm. in anything else you've read, have you read anything about why those changes were made? Like, was it I just believe... studio notes or something No, I else? think it was him. It was him basically saying, like, it's a tough thing for kids to swallow. I don't think he felt like kids would understand why, after going through all that to find Hiccup's mother, um, that, oh, all of a sudden now she's the bad guy. And it's it's a weird thing. He was on the Empire podcast recently. So I, I would recommend people go check out that interview. And he talks more about it there. Um, but it just seems like, yeah, he, he kind of just pulled it back on his own 
maybe he got some notes or something, but it seems like he just didn't think the audience, the child audience, would really understand it. Are you talking about the director of this movie, Dean DeBlois? Yes, Dean DeBlois. Yeah. yeah. So, some thoughts on this movie. Uh, first of all, let me just say I'm glad this movie exists. I think it's a better movie than the second film, mm-hmm. and yep. I'm glad we got a proper send off for these characters. Like, if 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 the franchise had ended with Dragon Two, I, I, that would have been a disappointment for me. Um, but I think this movie actually is a decent ending. It's not as good as number one, but it's better than two. And we got to really say goodbye to these characters. And so for that, I'm grateful. Second thing, these movies are, uh, f- for me, like the first one is as much a work of art. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm using the word, the correct words, but like, for instance, the, the music to the first one is mm-hmm. so memorable. It's, it's one of the, my favorite film scores ever written right and in fact opens this podcast every week right and uh i I think just as a package of like visual and audio entertainment it's like really well put together and um i think each movie is that way like it's just they're beautiful to look at they're beautiful to listen to and the first one i think the story and the dialogue and the performances were also great and the second and third one those latter elements were not as good right and the story was not as good and i think like that's kind of a bummer but you still have an amazing soundtrack by John Powell. Like, and it's not just a re- retread of themes from the first movie. It's like he's genuinely trying to do new and interesting things uh, as a composer with each of these movies. And so I'm just grateful that we have these scores as well because th- these are scores I'm going to be listening to. You know, I've seen the movie like 10 times. How to Train a Dragon 1 I've seen 10 times. How to Train a Dragon 2 I've seen like once. I've listened to the score like a thousand times, right? So it's like I'm going to – these are movies that are going to stay with me through their music for years yeah. to come. These numbers are not hyperbole either. Yeah, like no, I totally believe Completely this. believable numbers, right? So, okay. The, 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 the original sin of this movie is – I'm going to tell you a story from Justified, the FX show starring Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. And very – like extremely mild spoilers for Justified. Like if you've seen it, like I'm not going to give away like anything of value here. But um, s- season one, season two, and season three each basically had a villain. In each mm-hmm. of those seasons, right? That like yeah. throughout the course of that season, um, uh, Timothy Oliphant would like vanquish that villain basically throughout the course of that season. And it'd be kind of interesting to see how he would do it. But the problem is that as the show went on, the villains got increasingly outlandish, right? Like you had to – it's it's like a treadmill. Like you had, you had to like kick it up a notch in order for it to be like – like you have to one-up yourself, right, in order to – uh, make it as interesting because oh we had X villain in season two uh, and for season three we have to have a villain that's even more insane right otherwise it's not going to be as interesting and in fact that's what they did for season three I think Neil McDonough played a villain in season three mm-hmm. and it was super over the top like oh man I crazy hated that evil so like much. it's just it's yeah. kind of like took away from the believability of the show that you have a character like the Neil McDonough character in Justify season three right and I remember interviewing. Graham Yost, the uh, showrunner <laughs> of Justified, uh, when I was doing a a very rarely listened to podcast called the Justified Cast with John Robinson, and uh, I we we asked him like what like who's going to be the villain of season four, and he said you know what I don't know if there is going to be a villain for season four. I I think we're going to find a way to uh, to to derive drama from the existing characters of the show, and at the time I, I was like shocked. I was like how is that even like. That's what I thought the show was, was every season there was a villain. And uh, and in fact, that's exactly what he did. Season four, there was no main villain. 
And they were able to, like, figure out how to make the existing relationships between the characters super interesting. And I think this movie missed an opportunity to do that, right? Rather than, like, you've introduced, like, mm-hmm. two dozen characters. Any yeah. any of, like, conflicts between them, any of which you could have, like, derived some interesting drama out of. And instead they introduced this... Um, this villain who has a really interesting design, like a really cool villain, right? Like he has these like, you know, super cool looking dragons that like look like it could kill you. And they have like superpowers and stuff like that. And so I think like the design work is interesting and they made him super evil. Right. Um, but ultimately it's just a rehash of the second film. And, uh, and in fact, uh, Hiccup's mom actually comments on this in the movie. Like it's a yeah, yeah. meta moment. She's like, "Hey, by the way, Hiccup, I don't know if you remember this, but we actually did this in the second movie, right? Like, yeah. we also actually like did this whole... the Jedi. Another Death Star. Yeah, what? we actually did this whole thing in the second movie. Like, I know, I know, it might be easy to forget, but we actually did this in the second movie. So anyway, I I think it's a bummer. Like, I think going for a third, crazier, more evil villain was the wrong move, and as a result, all the characters get short shrift. Yeah. So what you're um, saying is their choice wasn't justified. <sighs> nice. Nice. Joke. I will say, even though the, the human villain kind of sucks, I do like all the time we spend building up uh, Toothless and the, the Light Fury's yes. relationship. Like, I think that stuff is fantastic. It's beautiful. It's beautiful for sure. But but certainly the, the director seems more interested in Dragon Foreplay than in any of the relationships between Listen, the characters. Listen, aren't we all? Yeah. Aren't we all? <laughs> Indeed. All right. You got to get the spoilers because there's a so... Little, so to be honest, to uh, you know, I haven't seen much Dragon Foreplay in, yeah. in film, whereas I've seen a ton of dude who's evil for no reason except evil. That's true. Uh, you know, the more Dragon Foreplay, or at least, like, just uh, the same amount of dragon foreplay <laughs> and then more character building around the people who are supposed to matter in the movie. I would have probably made this a much stronger movie. All right, let's get the spoilers for dragons three starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming. No, but you won't find it because of course they're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret you want to be fooled. So I, I think, Devendra, you were hinting at a really interesting thing this movie does, which is the first movie, right, is all about... How to not, train your dragon. It's, it's all about <laughs> not fearing the unknown. It's all about, like, hey, this thing that you fear, that you, it's, it's, you fear it because you don't understand it. Right? Right, right. And let's like once you understand it, like there's a better way in life. You you don't need to fear and fight each other. You can just understand each other. Right. And it's great. And then in the second film, he, he transforms it into a dragon utopia. But there's always this tension there. There's always this tension with the dragon utopia in Burke because uh, these dragons really are being subjugated. Right. Right. They are but pets. the movie isn't about that. They, also, but, is that true? I, I don't think that that's felt at any point in the series. Right. Agreed. I disagree. I disagree completely. Like, well, it's yeah. not felt in the sense that it's not like explicitly brought up. But it's at like the, the end, Pokemon thing. It's yeah, like, but, oh, they're all willing participants in this system of subjugation. That's right. Thank you, Devendra. And, and then, and then at the end, he's like, "Hey, you guys are free now." So wait, what were they before? Right, but, right. If wait, they wait, weren't wait. free before. If by free you mean free to obey Toothless's psychic commands, because every <laughs> single dragon in the world, Listen, it just does. And exactly because he's a dragon he king, and we're going back to monarchy here. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not not a fan of the politics of this entire series. Okay? Yeah. Um, but I think what is interesting about this movie, though, is it does say it does make this point of, hey, we subjugated the dragons, and actually that was a bad thing, and now you need to let them go and let them but kind of be their own thing. Complete- 
bullshit. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this <laughs> yes, podcast. Yes, it's fine. Yes, yeah. please do. It's, it's, uh, everything we see about the relationship between Toothless and Hiccup is based on mutual need. You know, it's it's originally based around the fact that, that Toothless has lost one of his tail fins and he can't fly on his own. And it's very touching that in this movie – he suddenly decides that for the first time, like that's actually really important because it's the only way that he can engage in dragon foreplay. But the relationship between the two of them, like what we see of the two of them, like playing together on the cliff where hiccups, like tossing his own artificial leg off the side of the cliff for, uh, for toothless to fetch. Like it's a, it's a relationship between a person and a working dog. You know, this is something with a very smart, uh, like, this is something with a lot of intelligence and like the ability to make decisions on its but, own. But these but it's were wild an animal. animals. These were wild animals. And in the way they're being helped now, sure. But eventually you, you got you to send them back out to the wild because they, they will never fully be themselves. I think that was what the movie was trying to do. I'm not sure if it fully conveyed that. But yeah. I, I, I agree with Tasha that this, these are horses. These are dogs. <laughs> if, so if, you're fine with the subjugation of horses, Jeff. Like that's what you're saying. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. Yes. Wow. I will come down on the side. I, on right, the right. side of yes, horses can be used by humans mm. and I won't. Sure, I don't sure. think it's wrong. But if it's like capturing wild horses and helping them and you do you keep them for your own gain and, you know, just to take care of them or is it better to let them roam free? I think this Maybe, is a deeper. I think, this is a I deep think thing. the thing that happens in this movie is that at some point that is not earned, and at no point does the movie do this. It's just a snap of the fingers. They become more <laughs> than pets. They become uh, stand-ins for sentient beings that have agency beyond what we've been led to believe. The movie. The franchise is called How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> Jeff, I'm saying I'm saying the brilliance of this movie is it's upending that that whole thing. Yes, and, I'm and that saying, is kind of crazy. That I'm is saying, insane for a kids movie. I'm saying if you had decided that's what this third movie w- was about, it would have been brilliant. Right, but it's not about that. It's that at the last ten minutes of the movie, it goes. Oh, by the way, I guess you guys should be on your own for no reason whatsoever. No, it was seeing that from the beginning. No, but, but I, I agree with you. I yeah. agree with Jeff that the movie is unfocused. Like if the movie was all sure, about sure. that tension, but uh, like, so Jeff, I think what, what we're saying is like, it's an interesting decision that the movie makes, but the way it gets there is not very graceful, right? Yes. It's not yeah. graceful at all. It's abrupt and out of nowhere. And it's, the movie is about toothless falling in love and fighting this foe. Yeah. And then at the end, it makes this dramatic left turn where we go, oh, crap, maybe these guys should be on their own for no reason. Did you miss the whole thing of the dragons, like, destroying the town by mistake? But then letting them go, sending them back to the the hidden world. Yeah, that's that's not for them. That's for you. Like, at the point where you're like, our resources can't take these dragons. So suddenly we realize we've been enslaving them all along. Like, that's crazy. Like you do make a good point that the title of the the, the series is how to train your dragon and not how to befriend your dragon. (laughs) But every single moment that we see with these dragons, like through the course of, uh, of the series up until now is about a love relationship between toothless and hiccup. It's about, you know, friendship and partnership and, and joy, like all of those flying sequences 
with the two of them together are about both of them testing themselves to the limits and loving it. Mm-hmm. All of the time you see with them like playing with it, with each other and protecting each other and fighting with each other is about building up this emotional relationship that is the realest and most resonant thing in this series. And then this movie at the end just sort of arbitrarily says, you know what? None of that's important. What is important is hot dragon sex and you should go do that instead. And it's, if you if you want to if you want to get deep into it it feels a little toxic to say you can have <laughs> friendships or you can have sex relationships but if if you want to go have sex that means you need to dump your old friends mm. because they were not good for you at any point all along why can't it be both you know yeah, why yeah. can't he come hang out with hiccup on the weekends when he's not taking care of the kids why right. can't they get a dragon babysitter why is it not okay but yeah but i think, that's okay? where but, uh, yeah, but I think that is the ending thing. yeah that is the ending is hey you know that friend that you had to say goodbye to because you all have to live your own lives uh, and you now have kids and your life's all different now, you can still hang out and be friends. Reconnect. You can I, say yeah. hi on Facebook, meet up for some coffee, yeah. for some dragon riding. Like, it's cool. It's, it's all cool. <laughs> I remember reviewing the first film and and just glowingly gushing about uh, the fact that if you've ever had a pet or wanted a pet or felt like you, a, a love for your dog, like this movie you know, conjures that. It displays it, it, it animates it in such a beautiful way about how you can you can have this beautiful best friend relationship with your dog. And this movie says the best thing for your dog <laughs> is to take it out, as Tasha said, out in the forest and leave it there. And that is insane. That's that's the, that's the craziest I, well, place so to go. So here's the thing. I love that we're arguing this because this is ultimately a kid's movie. And I love oh, that yeah. we're arguing the philosophical nature of this so much because I th- I think that's what's really interesting about it. It is the movie's own fault. It's not clear about this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I will say, you know, there, there are a couple of really interesting nuggets in there. Um, for me, it also felt like you could feel the sort of like parental allegories there, too. You know, of like you after a while, like you can't you can't be with your child forever. There are people who are literally treating these dragons like children, you know, in the baby Bjorn and everything. Yeah. Um, and it's like eventually they have to grow up. Eventually they have to find their own way. You know, we, it's I don't think we can just say they're like dogs because they're not. This is like if uh, if you if if like wild apes were running around and people were afraid of apes and like, oh, we can we can hang out with them. But eventually these things will destroy your home. They're not they're not meant to be enclosed in human living, like in a human society. In a way, they should be free to have their own domain. And maybe we can come up with a way to coexist eventually. But the whole idea of having it, I, I don't know. I just found it yeah. really interesting that I just the ultimate the movie conclusion to be about that. Let, let, like, let's change the yeah. subject because we've been talking about this for like 15 minutes already. Like, let's just talk about the the ending, like the the ending with. Uh, I mean, did that not get to you when Toothless has oh, to say yeah. goodbye? Or or oh, are you yeah. like uh, Tasha and Jeff? Are you like, hey, everything that led up to this moment when they have to say goodbye felt so contrived yes. that it didn't make an impact on you? It yeah. felt super contrived. And part of that is, uh, again, all right, so if the message is about, like, letting go and about parenthood, yes. like, that is a that is a perfectly cromulent message. But then, <laughs> nice. like, layered on top of that, you have, oh, all right, so there's that that very, very ending, the, the ending voiceover monologue from Hiccup, where he's like, dragons had to leave the world because we weren't good enough for them. So that's an idea that we really only get in the final mm-hmm. seconds. That's like, okay, wait, wait a minute. What? What's that about? And it sort of is mixed in with this idea that they're they have to send the dragons back to the hidden world 
because these dragon hunters are relentless and they're not doing it because they were subjugating the dragons. They're doing it because they need to protect them by sending them somewhere where they'll they'll be safe. Mm. But I don't feel like the movie makes a coherent decision about which one of these many things is the, the important one, the significant, the dominant one. It's all of them all at once. Yeah. It's all of them at once in a way that leaves the movie just very thematically muddled. It's like, are these our best friends that we're sending away to protect them? Are these animals we've subjugated that need to be free and wild? Are these some magical gift to the world that we're not good enough for and have to earn in some way? Listen, Tasha, Tasha, E.T. phone home. Oh! E.T. has to go home. E.T. E.T. going to go home and have hot sex with, like, yeah, pale, there, there are other pale ETs. He can't just be hanging around with these kids for the rest of his life. He's, he has to have a life of his own. Having a life of your own does not preclude having friends. Also, if if, if this movie had been from the beginning about, as you say, the tension between the dragons and the humans, if if all of the dragons had sort of yearned to be free in some tangible way other than Toothless wants to get some and and she's not. And other than destroying the buildings. Yes. If she yeah, if she. You know, the the light fury had just hung out in town. He would have been happy hanging out in the town. There was no there was no need for the for all of the dragons to be free expressed in the movie at any point. And and that's my problem. Like, I like the idea that we arrive at. We just don't earn it at all Mm -hmm. at any point. I think this movie has a lot of problems mechanically all throughout, too. Like part of the villain's plot is just to leave the light fury around to like attract toothless but it's a, it, he's not controlling her at that right. point yeah, even though he has the really weird, weird like what if what if they never thing. came back from right, the hidden right. world right he's like, like my <laughs> plan i'm just gonna i'm gonna put this thing in the forest next to this other dragon and hopefully they'll start to like each other they could they could just start fighting like the there's there's no guarantee for this plan or she could just fly off yeah, yeah they, it is yeah. really weird that uh that the villain's like oh i've got you know here here's the perfect bait and the perfect bait is we've captured the thing that i swore to destroy and i'm just gonna let it go right yeah. and it's a super weird moment too the movie makes a big plot point of like they find a perfectly feasible home, but it's not far enough away for Hiccup to be happy. It's that not was the hidden. Weird. That was it's, weird. Yeah. It's a strange beat of like everybody's super excited to start their new life here. And Hiccup's like, well, yeah. it's not far enough away from the bad guy. Like, yeah. And then there was this whole idea of like Burke is who we are. And I thought that was a very that's a very profound idea. Right. That like the, our homeland is like. Is is us, and it's not like a piece of land, and that that is also another idea that's just like, oh, here's whoop, and it's th- that's the idea. I mentioned it, and now we're moving on. You know, like right. uh, kind of a disappointment. So yeah, uh, to agree- be fair though, Burke Burke two, as far as the movie was concerned, seemed to be about two minutes away from Burke one. Like it, it <laughs> right. literally did feel like they packed up their entire lives, hopped yeah. one island to the left, it's and then everybody's like, simple. we're done. Yeah. Yeah. A great trip. So I think we all agree, ladies and gentlemen, that. You know, uh, movie has some problems. Devinder and I found it to be like a pretty satisfying conclusion, um, despite all the many issues. It sounds like Tasha and Jeff were not as big a fan, but uh, uh, this has been really interesting debating these. I, I think mm-hmm. I think what this conversation shows is that there's a lot of interesting philosophical territory that this movie could have mined but did not. Yes, right. And uh, that is a bummer. That is a bummer. So, I mean, these are ambitious films. It, it is good that they're they're complicated enough that we have to debate the philosophical under, underpinnings as opposed to, 
being thoroughly bored throughout. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's not um, all yeah. just like dancing animals and singing animals, right? And that's great. Yeah, it's not that's sing. Different. It's not an illumination film. Right. 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 So, anyway, ultimately, uh, the answer to how to train your dragon is don't. Yeah, that's right. I yeah, thought you were gonna say. You. I thought you were gonna say is love, but um, that's also. I was, true. I was gonna say with your heart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All well, right. That was the that was the theme up until this movie, and then this movie's <laughs> like, no, don't. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, folks. Um, well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the podcast. Tasha, it has been such a delight having you on. I'm sorry we went super long, but that's because uh, you're so interesting to talk to. So it's your it's kind of your fault. Well, um, yeah, obviously, it was a blast. But but David, you have to let me go. You have to let me go back into the <laughs> hidden world where Chicago. I've... Yeah, no one's going there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, indeed, I'm indeed. Retreat well, into the cold and see if I can <laughs> see if I can find oh, a male of my species. Can I say one last quick thing? I know we're, it's <laughs> way inappropriate for me to even go back to the movie, but I it, <laughs> I will hate myself for not bringing this up. It bothered me that Toothless learned a new superpower and it meant nothing. Like, <laughs> yep, that that new cool thing where you can like teleport uh, by shooting the thing that he learns from his girlfriend, and then literally it plays no part in the movie whatsoever. <laughs> well, he does use true. it to cast it, off those do- dragons at the end in like one yeah. moment. So, yeah, okay. he, he uses it in the There was a battle. callback. Yeah. Like one. Yeah. But you're right. That's a pretty major power that uh, is not really honored that much. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway. Sorry. We're wrapping up. Go ahead. Find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com and the score for How to Train Your Dragon. And our uh, spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week on the podcast. In the meantime, Tasha Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com, so you can find my my writing and interviews there, including uh, stuff about How to Train Your Dragon 3 and uh, The Dragon Prince, which is a much better and much, much more oh, sophisticated, so good. So really, good. really good show that's also about people's relationships with dragons and you know, psychic connections. And are they dogs? Are they friends? Are they people? We don't know. It's a complex fantasy world. You can find me uh, podcasting about other films, including Velvet Buzzsaw and Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood at the Next Picture po- at the Next Picture Show podcast, uh, Next Picture Pod on Twitter, nextpictureshow.net uh, online. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. All right, and I'd recommend you check out Tasha on Twitter and also at that podcast. Uh, it's something where I always learn something new every week. Uh, yeah. Devendra Hardware, where can you find more of your work on the internet this week? Oh, I'm on Twitter at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. I'm also doing a tech Q&A show at nomoretech.net. That's no with a K. How about you, Jeff? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T, and I have a video game podcast. If you're into video games, give it a check. Check it out. Uh, it's called DLC. You can find it wherever you get podcasts or by visiting 5by5.tv slash DLC. And uh, I made a video essay about Russian Doll and the ending of uh, that uh, Netflix original series. Check it out at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chensky. I'm making a couple of videos per month there, uh, and it should be fun. So check it out. And uh, also my other stuff is davechen.net. Next week, we'll be discussing Shoplifters, the Academy Award-nominated foreign film. Uh, I've heard it's great. Looking forward to talking about mm-hmm. it with you folks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you later. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad. It's the Slash Film Cast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.